results aren't going your way, it's easy to kind of like get on each other. A difference in our style, but it wasn't a difference as to who we are or what our identity as a team Keep up to date with the latest WSL action and the biggest interviews. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Oh yeah, we're promising you a full two hours of nothing but sports fixtures, digestion, analysis and reaction because World Rugby has a big plan and the Talchin Cup is uh, stratospherically bursting into our orbits like a shooting star, like a diamond, like Lady Godiva. Owen, how are you? I cannot wait for the Talchin Cup. Okay. He's buzzing. Uh, Colin Buig also here, Colin. Hi lads. Owen was buzzing this morning in the office. Colin's beloved Cork were nearly in the Talchin Cup. Yeah. I mean that would have been good, but for one match that would have been good. Well, I would like to have seen that. Yeah, that, that would have brought, brought a bit of pizzazz to proceedings, wouldn't it? Brought the glamour. A Cork Cavan Talton Cup final would have been good. I mean, it, and that's how it would have ended up, right? Yeah, exactly. North versus South. The 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 Warriors from the South of the land against the Warriors from the North of the land. This I, is how the Talton Cup is is going to to form. I honestly thought that we believed in an integrated thirty-two county. Island of Ireland. That's what I thought. It's in the rule book, actually. That's, that's, what, that's book, what I, I thought. But no, it's north and south. We've we've partitioned the country in the in the Talton Cup. Is that correct? Am I correct? Am I reading this correct? This is this is uh, true. This is something that came to to news and to light after Ryan McCluskey, formerly of Fermanagh, uh, t- tweeted out that um, that this was in the GEA handbook. Looked like official documentation that uh, he was actually tweeting out. So, um, yeah, I think maybe we could have all just uh, done a bit of research ourselves on this thing and came out, <laughs> but uh, it, it took it took somebody to actually come out and, and tweet the situation where there will be a geographical elements to this knockout competition. I guess bus, bus hire is so expensive these days, fuel costs have gone up, that it's obviously the right thing to do. Unless, unless... And there is actually a bigger plan here where they're thinking to themselves, let's do Friday Night Lights for the Talton Cup. Therefore, we have to have local derbies and therefore we have to have a northern section and a southern section. That's the imagination that's that's at play here, isn't it? OK, yeah. I mean, uh, can you still not travel? Maybe you can't travel there. Maybe, maybe, OK. I mean, how come the under-20s are forced to play midweek? Because they don't have real jobs. Is that it? Yeah. It's like, I mean... A lot of them are still doing their leaving search. They would have done yeah. T- TY repeated, first years. repeated again. Okay, and then done seven years of college. Footballers, exactly, yeah. Because yeah. you, you've got to get that Sigerson on or somewhere somehow. You got to get that Sigerson on your CV. Otherwise, Tommy Rooney will never mention you in the football pod. <laughs> And you'll never be a future football pod analyst, most importantly. Exactly. Uh, right, look, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later on. And World Rugby are planning on blowing up the calendar a bit, but not really um, for their summer tours. It's not quite the massive reorganisation that we thought was going to happen at the start of COVID that might actually have really catapulted the sport forward. But um, it's a variation of that. It's basically the uh, a copy of the Football Nations Cup, except uh, it's a global competition with two divisions instead of the four divisions that Europe has. Overnight, the big news is that Erling Haaland has passed his medical. Is that is that is like, or is doing his medical? Or is like, we're at the medical stage of this now where the breathless reporting on every aspect of this transfer that has gone on since it emerged that he had a buyout clause, which effectively sealed the deal that he was going to transfer this summer. And it was really down to Man City and it looked like Man City and Real Madrid and then for whatever reason Real Madrid fell off the table so it's been a, a one horse race essentially is this the end of football Column? that's what I'm asking you well if Liverpool couldn't win the Premier League this year without Manchester City having an established number 9 what does it do to the league next year if Erling Haaland completes this move 
It's like a cheat mode in Football Manager. They're just going to be... Are we all forgetting the Liverpool were flaky as F for about five weeks? And they just drop points willy-nilly from winning positions against Brighton, for example. Did we just did we just blah 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 that whole part of the season where Liverpool weren't very good for a period of time? I think it's actually against the bigger teams they haven't been great. They've drawn they drew, drew twice with Chelsea, Manchester City, Spurs. It's just converting those draws into wins that have when, let when them they down. F- when they were falling twelve points behind, when they were giving Man City the twelve point head start or eleven point head start or whatever it was, it wasn't the, the big teams who were stopping them doing that. It was their own ineptitude that like the the end of the season and they could well win three competitions, which would be absolutely sensational for them and they are an excellent team. Stephen Jarrett has said they're the best Liverpool team of all time. Which, you know, I'm not really not really sure about that just yet. But it, there was a period of the season where it was actually Liverpool's fault that they were out of the title race. It was nothing to do with Man City's yeah. greatness. Man City were uh, consistently good. Um, but no. But like, so what your point is that Liverpool are going to should up should a notch next season. Well, they should, they should definitely be able to challenge Manchester City next season. I'm not I'm not shooing Man City in because they signed Haaland like how many more points will Man City have next season because they've signed Haaland probably about five uh, so like because like they're going to finish up with 95 points this season they'll probably get to 100 again next season with yeah. Haaland in the team 2019-20 Premier League season was 99 wasn't it Liverpool won the, the league with so like you're hoping for Liverpool to get back to the level with which they won the league uh, post-Covid which they possibly can do you, you could make an argument that there have been certain moments in this season that they've hit a level that is, that is on a par with that if not above it it hasn't been all season obviously especially not in the Premier League but they've lost more games this season for example than they did in the entirety of that season when they won the league it's the draws that have killed them they've had 8 draws in the Premier League this season so there's definitely an, an argument to be made that Liverpool can get to a higher level especially given the work that they've done over the last year with the addition of Diaz and Canate for example maybe they'll sign again this summer maybe they'll lose a few players this summer but the one thing we do know for sure is that Manchester City are going to be stronger What if Sadio Mane goes to Bayern Munich as is reported the last 24 hours So slightly uh, weaker but the thing with Man City is that um, outside of Fernandinho Unless I'm forgetting someone now that they're not obviously going to be weakened this summer with anybody leaving. So even if um, Haaland signs and it's not a, the raging success that everyone predicts, Sterling, they're still going to be pretty much where they are now. Yeah, OK. Uh, I, I, That's so the base level. Sterling is being linked with Arsenal yesterday. And, OK, and, but not, uh, he's not a vital member of the team. No, he's not. Yeah. And Andro Silva is constantly being linked away as well. Yeah. Uh, Barcelona uh, linked with him consistently. And they're talking about potentially selling Mares. I, I don't think they will. I mean, they've tended to let players run their contracts down because they're so rich it doesn't really matter and maybe helps their accountancy if you're uh, if the value of what you have on your books collapses because then you can write that off and that's another way of uh, getting around your financial fair play look uh, we're, we're all the signs are that Erling Haaland will be a success at Manchester City but what does a success look like when a player has this reputation does he have to be European Footballer of the Year within the next three years for this deal to have been to, for it to have fulfilled its potential. Yeah, I think so, because he's kind of like a cartoon character of brilliance, Haaland. 85 goals in 88 games for Borussia Dortmund. Um, at Salzburg, he was brilliant in his one season. I think he, he played at Anfield in the Champions League for them. It was excellent. And I think because of the reputation that he has, that he just obliterates defences like a teenage Wayne Rooney did, that he has to win these cataclysmic individual awards and set the team that he plays for to new heights just because of the reputation he has, but he could actually be doing very well without winning any of those awards. And anything other than absolute brilliance is probably going to be seen as 
not not a failure, but maybe an underwhelming signing. And that's just because of the, he's a victim of his own early success. But I think it has to be, uh, I, th- I think the numerical uh, kind of element of this has to, to match up to, to what they're paying for him and, and what he's expected to be. Like he's got to be a Lewandowski-style uh, freak when it comes to the statistics. Now, Lewandowski, 40. Uh, we're talking 40, or at least go game for game with your goal your goal tally. Um, and that, that includes Premier League goals. Like, well, like you're going to score 38 Premier League goals in a season. That would be absolutely <laughs> extraordinary were he to do that. But Lewandowski came close to doing something like that. 48 goals and 40 appearances in 2020-21 that's in all competitions admittedly and then 49 in 2021-22 uh, so um, sorry 55 uh, three years before that was was the, the one wasn't it where he got over 50 goals so that's the level I think that Haaland needs to get to 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 kind of not justify the price tag because the price tag isn't that high but to justify the hype and to I guess realise his potential that it looks like he's got Well they've also blown up their wage structure which is going to be interesting to see what the dynamic of that is in that change room. If they win the Champions League next season, none of this matters, right? But again, to go back to it, so let's quantify success. They have to win the Champions League, right? That's the whole point of signing the best young player in the world. Maybe Mbappe is better than him. I don't know. It'll be interesting over the next couple of years. Uh, do we automatically assume that he hasn't peaked? That he's going to get better and better? That... Yes, we are making that assumption. Of that he's not Michael Owen, that he's not Robbie Fowler, that the early stages of his career weren't the best. Yeah, yeah, we, we like. There's obviously no guarantee that that's not going to be the case, but everybody is making that assumption, and I think, like, it's it's just impossible to say that it's it's definitely going to be the case. Now, in fairness, it's, you'd like to hope that he's not going to be as unlucky with some of those young players when it comes to injury. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I guess my point is that we assume that one player missing piece of jigsaw equals. All conquering, slathering of Massive greatness. Massive gain. Yeah, but I, I'm not always sure that that is the case. No, ne- neither am I. Like I, I think individually for Haaland, I think. There Do they is change a, their style of play? Do they become more more predictable in that you you put two defenders on Haaland, you clog up that area, and where previously you didn't know where the threat was going to come from because it could have been Mares, it could have been Foden, it could have been Silva, it could have been anybody. Uh, now it's like, well, we just mark him. They're, they're all passing it to him all the time because they've been told that they need to... Like, it, it does it change their style of play in any way that makes it easier for your Burnleys, your Villas? Hey, you know, imagine what would happen, right? Say they sign Haaland and then they win the Champions League next season. Well, and then, then Pep is like... I'm out. I'm done. And then Haaland's like, what? You told me I'm joining this incredible project. And now I'm here on my own for the next five years of this six-year contract. And then Haaland moves on again. Well, they, they, I'm envisioning Pep just saying I've had enough of this once he wins the Champions League. I think, yeah. I think he, he needs, needs a break. He needs a sabbatical. No, I don't think so. I think that this Not is to say now, that forever, lads. He, need, he needs he needs more for his legacy. He's he's obviously reading all the stuff about your you know uh, I'm too clever. I'm I need to be the cleverest man in the room. He, he's read all that stuff. He's reading all the stuff about like all that stuff about Liverpool fans and uh, Man United fans being in the press. Like that means he's reading all the press, and we know we know from talking to everybody that they all read everything all the time, right? This oh, they're not doom scrolling on Twitter. Yes, they are. They're all doom scrolling all the time. So, I think he feels like he needs to deliver more than one Champions League for all the money. And now there is no excuses left. There is nothing that can ever say that they can point to and go, "We got diddled by a referee. We had an injury crisis." It's like, sorry, you've got the best players in the world. You've got the best team in the world and you keep not winning. What's going on? What's the problem here, Pep? Mm. And it comes down to one game next season. 
where Pep's legacy is on the line and it'll be the Champions League final if they make it. Like, just on, the, on that kind of idea of, of what the sort of game will be for Manchester City, there's obviously such tight margins given the height that they're operating off. And it did feel that maybe when Pep came in initially, the individual greatness, statistically, of Sergio Aguero dipped a little bit. He obviously had a, a great role to play, especially after Jesus came in and he kind of reinvented uh, his role as a centre-forward. But I'm talking goal-scoring Sergio Aguero. I think his his um, highest tally in a Premier League season would have come before Pep Guardiola arrived, even though he was still an outstanding player after Pep Guardiola arrived. So this sort of these ridiculous figures that maybe I mentioned a moment ago that we might expect from Erling Haaland, the one complication is that we haven't actually seen that from an individual striker Ever. under Guardiola. Yeah, and also... like Well, Messi under Guardiola. But sorry. But in the Premier League, I'm talking about. Do you know in the Premier League, I've I've, I've got the top ten in one season ever. Do you know? Do you have, do you have an idea? Well, I suppose Ronaldo maybe before he left. How many goals do you think in the in the, the Premier League season? In, Thirty in the, in the Premier League only. So twenty nine goals is good enough for tenth. And then so, Drogba, Kane have have twenty nine. Kevin Phillips, Thierry Henry, Robin van Persie, Harry Kane again have thirty. Alan Shearer, Cristiano Ronaldo, and Luis Suarez have 31 and Mo Salah is on his own as the top scorer in a single Premier League season Premier League only with 32 goals in 2017-2018 So that's got to be the target that's yeah. got to that's be the target for the, the talent we're talking about here but does the Manchester City system allow that to happen? And sir, look I suppose here's the thing he could score 60 goals in the Premier League and if they don't win the Champions League next season we'll be like well that didn't quite work out the way it was supposed to <laughs> you know? Yeah Real Madrid oh, beat them late on after shithousing their way through a system that'll stop number nine. HR, I meant to say to you, um, Newcastle United will overtake Manchester United. Your big take from last Friday. Well, baby, we only lost 4-0. Oh, well, I was they thinking, lost 5-0. So it's already looking good for United next on, season. On Saturday, I was definitely... Um, going to retweet this. going to put that out Yeah, you were retweeting. Be damned. Da, 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 da. But I still think it's... I think, and I think it's actually even more evident that the 5-0 uh, is obviously less significant because it's against Manchester City and two of the goals come after the 90th minute but the 4-0 absolute dismembering of Manchester United by Brighton it's very very hard to come back from that maybe it's a hinge point and maybe nice. everybody looks at themselves and maybe everybody decides yeah okay we're grand but I'm looking through that team and I'm going who, who does Ten Hag look at next season and go you're my guy and you're my guy and you're my guy and you're my guy he says it to one or two people in that entire changing room. And after that, this is a massive work of remedial action where he's trying to turn some non-footballers into footballers, some reasonable footballers into good footballers, and one good footballer into a great footballer, and that's it. And who, uh, to, is Bruno still a good footballer? Yeah, or brilliant, yeah. Is he? Is he? We all get into funkster, you know. He's Tactically anarchic. Tactically anarchic. Sure, that's like... No, that, that's not like, look at the goals and assistance he signed in January 2020. Yeah, I mean, his weak point might be his inability to take on uh, tactical nuances, but then his plus points are far outweigh them in terms of his goals and assists. He's just having an atrocious season like everybody else for Manchester United, bar David De Gea and Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, in terms of like the 4 0 against Brighton, like, you know, it's, it's the lowest point and they won't recover from it. Last day of the 2018 19 season, United lost 2 0 at home to Cardiff. It, it was like a bookmark. You know, like there's last loads of, season, of bad results. Last day of the season. This is, is pretty much it was the third last, second last game of okay, the season. Okay, okay, it's the same thing. I don't think it's, it's the, the same, same thing. thing. I mean, there's still bits to play for. There's still position in the Premier League table, Europa which is League, worth Champions money. So this is your Stoke City moment. That's the analogy you were looking for. The Brendan Rodgers Stoke City 
Liverpool was no, I was saying the opposite yeah. because the poor results lads have been fairly commonplace for the last nine years that it's kind of hard to pick the absolute low point you could have said in that same 2018-19 season the 4-0 away to Everton was terrible when Solskjaer uncharacteristically eviscerated his players in the post-match interview it's been loads Liverpool a few weeks ago was terrible that was Liverpool's easiest uh, performance of the season so far against Manchester United like it was like a FA Cup third round tie for a lower league table they're an absolute shambles of a club they're actually they're a bunch of cowards those United players I, like, I, pretty, I felt pretty strongly about it against Brighton but it's not the low point it's just one of many uh, no it's a new low we were, we were having this argument about the, we were picking the nits about the lows is it, is it the lowest of the lows no because it can still go lower like, are you buying stocks in Manchester United now or are you waiting I, th- I still think there's a depression to come yeah. the first six months of Ten Hag are going to be absolutely desperate there's no way that he can walk in and make the team like sorry uh, they might be able to nil-nil their way through their first 10 games but I'm predicting more draws than wins in their first 18 league games next year and that's totally fine as long as the second half of the season is good and Manchester United fans have that patience because I think as we've seen this year you can charge your way into the top four with a little bit of a late run or any sort of run that involves maybe 5-6 wins in the bounce and if they can get to that point where, can, where they can that, get that run in and around in and around Christmas then um, they're in business I think I think a lot depends on Spurs and a lot depends on whether or not Conte stays and if they spend money because if, if they spend money and he stays then you have at least four clubs who have their shit together so there's the top two who obviously mm. clearly have it looks like Arsenal have mm. it's not guaranteed but their young collection of players their collection of young players is absolutely amazing and if they were to sign some experience then you would expect them to be consistent over the course of next season if Spurs are also consistent, if Conte stays... Kane will stay now. Kane's not going to go to United now, is there's he? No, lads, we don't know if Conte's going to stay. Like No, we don't. That's what I'm saying. That's literally... I've just uh, said I it. know, but I'm just, I just want to reiterate that because you were saying if he stays as if he might stay. Like, he is the equivalent of renting. He's I renting a, a house with Spurs, but he's still looking to buy. Yeah, OK. I think there's a good chance he's going to stay, right? And then the last one is Chelsea. is a great unknown. There's rumours in the papers today that... Tuchel and Alonso had a, a row. Uh, he took him off at half time. Words were exchanging dressing. Well, I'd say words were exchanging dressing all the time, but words are starting to get out. Leaks are starting to appear from Chelsea. And if they were to somehow not finish in the Champions League places, then you're not quite sure what will happen and whether or not the manager will stay and whether or not the new owners like the manager, etc., etc. So it's it's that that bit is still TBC. But if if those five clubs were good next season, then how are Man United going to? fluke their way into the top four the way they have done in, pre- in recent seasons Sorry, I meant they came second last season like, yeah exactly so Europa League final they, they have that, well. that, that base of player who've proven that they're good enough to be in that company and, and then they added Ronaldo to it and, and Varane and Varane and everybody's got worse since they arrived well, so maybe that's the thing maybe maybe Luke Shaw re-emerges as a, a good left back like what, what's interesting is that like if you did like a, a draft at the start of the season and you threw in Chelsea players Spurs players Manchester United players Arsenal players into the mix uh, and picked the starting eleven from it. I'm not sure you'd have actually ended up with any Arsenal players in that starting eleven. You would have picked from all the other three clubs. Yeah, and there's a chance they're one point behind Chelsea at this point. That the, like it's very very hard to kind of quantify what's actually happened this season with regards to the yeah. But Arteta's the school of Pep, where it's not really about the individual; it's about the system. So he's just he's. Wouldn't that be the case with every manager? Well, I think I'm saying it's a good thing. Like Arteta's done a great job. Well, at Arsenal. Be, it will be Ten Hag but, as well, right? But Daryl, you said it will be desperate for Ten Hag in the first six months. What do you mean by that? I mean desperate. that there is nobody he trusts there yet but how do we know players that? are going to have to earn his trust because they, he, he can't have built a relationship with them he's had Zoom calls with them I mean exactly uh, you know um, I think that if you look at who is going to leave 
none of them you would want to stay, right? But there will be a massive gap in the dressing room where all those seats were. And you've got to fill those. Is he going to fill them with Donny van de Beek? Is he is he going to bring van de Beek back? I don't know. He's one, like okay. he knows him, uh, but he'll definitely get preseason at the very least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, does he bring Martial back and try and convince him? Don't think so. I don't know. Like, don't uh, are they going to continue to pay a hundred grand of his wages every week next year? Another five million. Then, would you rather take the punt and see if you can turn him into something? And then, if you can, great. And if you can't, hit. Like, the only thing is that you want to give him meaningful game time in the season and all of a sudden that's another six months down in the contract that you lose on the player but it doesn't seem Manchester United care too much about things Well like they that. don't have bodies to be strikers Yeah Do you know? Like uh, they actually don't if Yeah they've obviously lost a couple this season Cavani and Greenwood won't be there next season and um, so you'll have Rashford and Ronaldo maybe and do you, do you want Ronaldo? I don't know I don't think so I think a clean break would be good Do you want De Gea if that's not what your if your style of play is like yes. uh, high line yeah, and David De Gea is going to be enforcing that high line is that what is that going to happen? Yeah. Are you asking me these questions? Yeah. You're asking everyone I will, I'm asking like does Ten Hag really so if you can cash in on if you can cash in on Bruno and you can cash in on De Gea do you actually sell them this summer and think right this is going to be a full on rebuild and we're going to I'm going to sign a goalkeeper who I know is capable of playing a high line. I'm going to play a defence. I'm going to get rid of Harry Maguire too. Like, this is all on the table. There's also on the table that he keeps everybody and tries to fix it. And by Christmas is like, they're 14th. Yeah, I mean, he well, he can't... Behind Newcastle. He can't and won't get rid of everybody immediately, obviously. So then you'll be surprised that he'll just get performances out of players who've been previously terrible. Uh, but you're talking like, I would say like two or three max in and out beyond the players that are out of contract which is about a half a dozen actually so you're talking probably 9 to 10 players max will go and then he'll probably bring two to it won't, yeah it is it's a quite yeah. a bit but bear in mind that two thirds of those outgoings are, are going to go anyway regardless of who the manager is uh, Dave says Liverpool aren't good enough Man City are better end of story uh, Liverpool are pretty good they were flaky for a couple of weeks there in the middle of the season and that cost them dearly why is Nathan not on OTBAM? He knows the most about football, says Alan. <laughs> it's Nathan's burner account there. Um, Nathan is uh, currently playing golf at the Irish Open press day down in Mount Juliet. They were wined and dined last night, so he's sleeping off his steak and red wine, which uh, he can he can give us a review of on tomorrow's show. Kenny the Dad says, what if Alan cuts his hair and it turns out he's actually Samson and then he's brutal? Uh, you'll never walk alone. Says Kenny the dad. Jessica says Bruno is extremely average, just like every other good player at United. Even De Gea is at best the fifth best goalie in the league. Um, Kenny the dad has another great comment on YouTube, which is all United fans thinking it's like the team tune to the new Labour 1997 campaign, which was things can only get better by D Ream. Very good. Great knowledge there. Did you know that? No, I didn't. All right. Do you know the tune? Yeah, I do know the tune. We should think it. Yeah, good election for Labour. <laughs> yeah, a false dawn. Cool Britannia. Uh, Man City and Newcastle will dominate English football until Elon Musk decides to buy Brentford, says Fergus. And Mossy says, not only do we have to suffer MUTV on Sky Sports, now we have to suffer it on OTB as well. Moving on, lads. Here's what's coming up between now and uh, 10 o'clock this morning. Uh, we're going to talk to Daniel Harris at 10 past 8. We're talking tennis now, though. We've got sports pages for you at 8.35 where we'll give you details of both the Talton Cup and World Rugby's plans for a new global calendar. Anthony Nash is going to join us to talk hurling at 8.50. Dan Carter, the New Zealand legend, is going to join us at 9.10. 9 and then uh, more reaction and analysis 
from OTV Towers at half past nine. We'd love to hear from you this morning. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. And a reminder, OTB AM is live each morning with Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. So, uh, Colm, mm. your real interest is not Manchester United, it is tennis. And there is a new superstar has been born quietly, hatched almost, overnight, over the winter. Who is this guy and why is he so special? Uh, he's been bubbling up for a while, right? Carlos Alcaraz's character from Mercia in Spain. There he is there on screen for the viewers, celebrating uh, his immense weekend. Last week, he made Craig David's seven days seem like an absolute joke. <laughs> on, on Thursday, right, turn 19 and beat Cam Nari, uh, British number one, last year's Indian Wells champion. Friday beats King of Clay, Rafa Nadal on clay in his resetter. Saturday beats Novak Djokovic, the reigning French Open champion, the world number one, in a three-set monumental three-and-a-half-hour tussle. And then on Sunday, absolutely obliterates world number three, Alexander Zverev, in the final. All back to back, back to back to back to back to back. 19 and just beaten two legends in the world number three. And it's never been done on clay to beat uh, Nadal and Djokovic one day after another. But this guy is the real deal. It wasn't like this was a, a flash in the pan of an amazing week for Alcaraz. Like he's already won the Miami Open, which is another Masters 1000 event. So it's, it's huge for your points for the end of season. ATB finals when the top eight players in the world uh, face up against each other, which has been known as you know the fifth Grand Slam, really. And at the moment, he's second in that race to get to that. So he's in pole position to play in the ATP finals. He won the Miami, Miami Open, which is actually on hard court too. So that's another surface that he's excellent on. And on the way to winning that, he beat Stefanos Tsitsipas, which was last year's uh, Roland Garros runner-up, one of the best players in the world as well. And before that this year too, he won the Barcelona Open and he won in Rio as well. Again, beating top players on the way, like Tsitsipas again. Uh, Matteo Berrettini, who was last year's Wimbledon runner-up, and Diego Schwartzman. This guy has it all. The quotes coming from the players that he's beaten over the last few days. Alexander Zverev saying that right now he was directing it to Alcraz in his um, loser speech, which was, you are the best player in the world right now. And Alcraz has been the best player in the world since, definitely since the Australian Open in January when Rafa Nadal won his 21st Grand Slam against Daniel Medvedev. Since then, Alcraz has been absolutely monumental. Um, Djokovic said that... He's breaking all sorts of records. He's the best player in the world this year. No question with that. That was after he lost the semi-final against him on Saturday. Nadal said he's not surprised by how brilliant Alcaraz has been. He's known Alcaraz for a long, long time. And the thing with him is, if you just go on YouTube and watch his highlights from those games that I mentioned, the Sverdev, Djokovic and Nadal match, this guy is absolutely everything. He's the fastest player on tour. He's an absolutely brutal set of ground strokes in the forehand and backhand side. He is a really deft touch. Uh, thinks a lot of balls over the net when players are in the back of the court waiting for his thunderbolt of a forehand or a backhand. He's just messing with players the whole time. Um, he's the complete player and he's just turned 19. Probably the only question is his serving precision, but he actually has a brilliant uh, topspin serve as well that, again, just completely bamboozles his opponents. They go way too wide out in the court. By the time they get it back to him, he's just firing the forehand into the far side of the court. The only thing then that he really has to prove is can he do a best of five? Because everything I mentioned there, those four tournaments that he's won this year, they've all been best of three. Well, I just looked up his Australian Open results and he was beaten by Bertini. No no shame in that. Bertini's one of the best hardcore players in the world and that well, was the best. That was a five-setter. It went to the fifth. It went to the fifth. It went to the tie-break in the fifth. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And last year he got to the US Open quarter-final and he was the youngest player to do that in the Open era. So he's well on course. He's very young. I think in terms of winning two Masters 1000 events, the only player to do it younger than he was his hero, Nadal. 
do we beat the other day and Bertini went all the way to the semis where he was beaten by Nadal so like his form line even from the Australian Open is, is decent um, you know but you know the other thing with them too is that generally when a match gets tight and especially against the titans like Nadal and Djokovic players tense up they get very tight he doesn't he goes the other way he actually loves the pressure and he hits even more freely and he, he feeds off the energy of the crowd but his record this year in 2022 has been incredible 28 wins 3 losses that's a 90% win record and 8 of his last 9 victories have been against top 10 players so he relishes the big event and I think for you know like I've been coming on here for about 3 years talking about tennis and inevitably we always talk about the big 3 in the men's side Nadal, Djokovic, Federer who's essentially finished now and we're always talking about well is there anybody to contend with them and you have Medvedev now who won the US Open last year you have Dominic Thiem who won it the year before uh, Alexander Zverev is always there they're about Sitsabas has got to a final but they, they all, all those four players who would be probably the closest along with Berrettini to actually challenge the big three they're all probably missing something Medvedev is the best of them even he consistently is probably missing the absolute um, you know cross-sport appeal of the, of the big three Alcaraz, he's only 19, but he has the potential to go past all of them and to be the best player overall. Definitely world number one in a few years' time. He's world number six now. Last year in May, he was world number 120. He's second favourite for the French Open. Is that just because of the fact that it's five sets and Nadal is heavy favourite over that duration? Yeah, I, uh, I, but I, I think there's a name we left out. I think Djokovic could easily retain this. I, you know, Djokovic has had a terrible year. Obviously, didn't play the Australian Open. We covered that well. He's played very little tennis actually since then. And same with Nadal since he won the Australian Open. He won the event afterwards in Mexico, I think. Um, got to the final of Indian Wells and then has taken a few weeks off. So I think um, Madrid Open, this, this one that Alcaraz won, was Nadal's first in about six weeks. Uh, Nadal and Djokovic are playing Rome this week. Alcaraz took it off because he actually got injured um, in the quarterfinal against Nadal. He lost that middle set 6-1 because he went over on his ankle. So that's a slight concern for him. But I would say in terms of contenders... For the French Open, it's probably the hardest one to call in a long time because it was always going to be Djokovic and Nadal. Do you remember last year's semi-final was the best tennis match of the last 12 months? That coincided with the, the first day of Euro 2020, Italy against Turkey, where a lot of people actually ended up watching Djokovic and Nadal because it was so brilliant. So everyone was waiting for the rematch this year, but now this kid is coming into it. It'll be a shame if all three are on the same side of the draw, which could very likely be the case. So we won't get to see them play against each other and it'll be the rest that will play them. That's not confirmed yet. So it's really tough to call, but uh, it's the most exciting Grand Slam left this year. We have Wimbledon afterwards and then the US Open to finish up. But because Nadal, obviously, king of clay, uh, Djokovic is the reigning French Open champion. And now you have this kid coming on the scene who you could argue is, you know, definitely the best player in the world in current form, but maybe has the best all-around game in tennis, possibly. Right. He's just absolutely brilliant at everything he does and it'll be really interesting to see if he has the longevity of the two lads um, and what about grass do we think the grass one and the thing we're not sure of he lost in the second round last year in Wimbledon we're just not sure of that but the exact same thing was said about Nadal Nadal got to his first Wimbledon final I think in 2007 was easily beaten by Federer then the following year he beat him in the all time classic final but Nadal for a long time was very poor on grass he would he would get knocked out at Wimbledon in the early rounds and it was really clay was his thing and then eventually he transitioned that to hardcore too and of course he's won all four Grand Slams at least twice so that's definitely in Alcaraz's ability to do that I mean as I said the two 1000 Masters events that he's won this year have been on clay and hardcore so he's just missing grass which is really a tiny portion of the season and it's just 
that obviously it happens when Wimbledon happens. Yeah, and just a reminder too, because it's easy to forget, Alexander Zverev is the guy who there's an investigation hanging over after allegations yeah. by uh, an ex-girlfriend. Horrific domestic abuse allegations were made against him. The ATP have announced an investigation, but have yet to reveal any progress in that investigation. They announced it last October. Yeah. This is now, just have to check the date, 10th of May. And um, I don't know, this is kind of taking their, dragging their heels, it appears. Over that, of course, Zverev maintains he's innocent of all the abuse allegations, but he's also the guy who uh, screamed at the um, umpire. That was Mexico, wasn't it? And banged his racket off the. Yeah, yeah, we covered that. The three of us, he did worse than that. Remember that morning seeing that video, and I was thinking, when was this from? And it was, geez, it was overnight. Ah, that was insane. He just missed the uh, umpire's legs, yeah, but. Yeah, you know, like so tennis, tennis needs somebody other than him to be uh, reaching finals and uh, good. Yeah, and I think it is getting a bit awkward with him because he's an excellent player. He's world number three, you know, previous Grand Slam finalist, was two points away from winning the US Open in 2020. Brilliant player. And I think the awkward thing is he's always in contention. You know, he's always getting to the last uh, eight for our final of events. Um, and, you know, it, there's a big element in the room. And tennis, as usual, just does itself no favours in the way it conducts itself and in all matters, not just the Sverdov case. But as you say, look, the investigation is underway. It's still happening. And as you also say, Sverdov uh, maintains his innocence. All right. Um, Alcaraz, he's your hero? Well, he's, Nick Kyrgios is a Grand Slam champion. In doubles. Remember that? I in do. doubles, yeah. I do. That was a great time. It was. A great time for tennis. Look, but he brought the fun to it and the joy. But you're a Kyrgios convert, aren't you? I yeah, certainly he's winning me over. The only problem is, I, yeah, when, he's, when he's you, taking clay, the clay season off. He never plays clay. He's when not you, into when it. you like read about some of the stuff, he's like he's spitting in the direction of an umpire. Like, I mean, am I? I'm not oh, yeah, sure. I, I'm going to bat for this guy. Yeah, something he kind of lets you down at times. Does let you down. He does bring the entertainment. Does send you messages it. personally though, so you're delighted. You're happy. Oh yeah, forgot about that. Yeah. Um, that, are you getting another one this year? It's around this time, isn't it? Your birthday. Uh, my birthday? Yeah. No, it wasn't for my birthday. Oh, it was for it's your wedding. Stag. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not for the wedding. It was for the stag. Okay, yeah. These are these are. I think it is. Wish me happy birthday. Things. I don't think he was listening to the instructions. But yeah, Alcaraz. Um, no, he's just he's so enjoyable to watch, and I w- honestly would encourage anybody to just uh, look it up on YouTube. And like, he's such a big following. I was seeing the figures on those videos, the highlights of Nadal, Djokovic, and Zverev. They all have a million plus views each. Like you know, tennis is. Um, really loyally followed around the world and this guy is a lot of people's heroes already just the way he plays because it's not attritional stuff he just he's just going ho and his precision on the ground strokes is just unbelievable even like you should actually check out the point um, to win the match against Nadal he was way out of the court and Nadal had a, a net volley which he put in and it was you know that was for any other player that would have gone in and that would have been the point for Nadal Alcaraz sprints back and then just uh, top spin forehand into the far right corner and Nadal just put his head down and was like fair play you know incredible it was the first time he beat Nadal actually he had lost to him in the Indian Wells semi-final earlier in the year so he's his hero he beat Nadal Nadal's not surprised and these guys look these guys are getting jealous like Djokovic and Nadal don't like this they don't like this kid coming on the scene Good. so it's nicely competitive alright uh, James says why is there no mention of Sunderland's playoff win against Sheffield Wednesday last night the playoffs provide great football drama and OTBAM regularly mentions the Sunderland Till I Die Netflix documentary I still haven't seen it no, no. Until I die. Oh, it's great. Have you? Did you watch uh, Class of '92, the Salford City? Uh, Is it a series? Evolution? Yeah. No. It's, it's ongoing. No, it's too long. It's I quite mean, good, actually. I'm not committing to. It's very good. I've, I've had enough of the Class of '92 in my life. I don't really need any more. It's unbelievable how hands-on Gary Neville is, especially versus is all it, the other owners. Is it unbelievable yeah, how hands-on the other owners? He, he does absolutely everything. Surely he must. What was it? What was the Alf Stam said about him? What was it? 
I, I'm not surprised to learn that he is. I, you know, he, no, I know that, but it's unbelievable. I would not be surprised if he was like folding towels in the hotel they own just to make sure that they're all folded properly. And that's how you do it. That's how you do it. That's how you fold those towels. To be fair, Yap Sam threw Phil in with that as well. He did. It was both of them. So maybe, well, yeah, maybe Gary on his own is it's not very busy. He seems busy. It's all Phil. Yeah, and Roy King just shows up sporadically to the matches just to watch and then just uh, idles away. But it's very interesting. He's just uh, so passionate about the whole thing. But uh, Sunder and Tlaitai is amazing just because of the chaos. Well, it, That's pure chaos, whereas Salford's a bit, of, uh, a bit of sense to it all. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened if Keane had taken the Sunderland job because last night they scored like a 93rd minute winner to uh, beat Sheffield Wednesday in the first semi-final. So they're through to the final. I have no idea who they're playing. Wickham. Wickham. All right. Um, Do you think he should have taken the Sunderland job? No, I don't. I don't think so. Either. I don't. But this, this is this is the job. Like that's what he would ha- he would have had to reach the semi-finals uh, the final of the playoffs for it to be successful and get promoted for it to be successful. So um, there's your sliding doors moment for the day. If you want to get in touch, you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream youtube.com forward slash off the ball. You should subscribe there as well. And a reminder: OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, the Cork GA slum very quickly were you, were you in Park you were in Colm no I was not uh, a match going fan I was admiring uh, Owen well I was supposed to go to the Munster match and just didn't go in the end so that was actually my choice was to go to the Munster game um, but yeah it was a who's who at Park you ring Micheál Martin Roy Keane and Owen Shane top three celebrities you probably were the term, term most famous person there were you definitely yeah. yeah did you know that David Clifford was there no with the yeah. boxing and is there a power ranking of the top most famous Sam boys? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, was I'm trying to think. Wasn't uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of somebody else? That's like famous. Dick Spring. Oh, Dick Spring and Michael Fassbender. Oh, really? Number three and four. All oh, right. Well, did Dick Spring go there? Um, I just I, made that I up. Actually, I actually don't know. I don't. Pat Spillane did, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> One would Spillane be more famous than Fassbender and Kerry? Do you think? <laughs> By, uh, unfortunately, by uh, by a bit by of distance, distance. Yeah. you think so? Yeah, yeah. If you were to do like a who's this, who's this, everybody exactly would. on that front, definitely. I think actually he'd be more. I'd say Fassbender would be more famous by name than face, right? Um, but his face is obviously still very famous. Yeah. Is he Clarny? He is. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's up and down. He's the inner side, hasn't it? He's essentially, he's essentially David Clifford's neighbour. Is guess. he? Yeah. All right. Something in the water down there. Um, so Cork football, are you happy with what you saw? Is this like, this is the age of moral victories for a Cork football column and so therefore that was like a quantum leap forward, a 12-point hammering at home. 11, 12? No, it got to the 55th minute. Oh, you get a special prize to be in level at 55 minutes. Oh, what do you want from us? Oh, like? No, I mean, no, what do you want? want like? Sorry, what do you want? Like? Look, Kerry obliterated them. Like Kerry toyed with them. Like it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, twelve points we know in the wins. end. What happens? The mouse dies. They ran away in the last ten minutes, but they, as they should, like look where Cork are and look where Kerry are. Anything less would have been a disgrace. I asked. I was saying to Owen on Friday, like, what margin of victory would you be disappointed in? Six points. Six points would have been like, yeah, okay, we were in that game. But the twelve points where the towel gets thrown in at the end, where it's like a training game for the last seven or eight minutes, and the scores keep coming and keep coming and keep coming, and it's non-stop, like. That's the bit where your defensive structure has broken down, where something has happened. And, like, I don't know. I think that... I do think there's a red storm rising. We keep seeing the underage teams being brilliant. Well, I, I find it very interesting that... Yeah. Um, I, I know I keep bringing it up, but it was just interesting that the strength and conditioning thing is the uh, element that was mentioned in our conversations around Cork Hurling last week, which would have the same... 
I guess, people running it as the, the Cork footballers and their yeah, underage strength conditioning, yeah. a, a county-wide programme to get people at Limerick's level when it comes to hurling. And on the evidence of Saturday, they also need to get to Kerry's level when it comes to the physicality because Kerry looked at Dublin a few years ago and said, there is the barometer and we need to, to get there. And you could see every single year over the last couple of years, O'Shea and Cliff just got bigger and bigger and bigger to the point now where they're, where they're men and they're ready to, to tackle anybody in the country yeah. and Cork just look off it. Yeah. And, and, th- and I think that's why they tailed off later in the game rather than some sort of uh, tactical implosion. Yeah, but that ca- and that can be done. The strength and conditioning can obviously be fixed. Anyone yeah. can, can reach those heights if you have the will to do so. But uh, skill-wise, like, it's encouraging. Like you know, We failed to mention so far there was a 12-point uh, margin there, but the point of the match was Stephen Sherlock with the drop of the shoulder and outside of the right foot. Mm. Beautiful. And Cahill beautiful pinged over a couple of nice ones as well. So like you can hang your hat on those two inside forwards as somebody to build a team around over the next 10 years. Yes, they won the game on TikTok. Congratulations. Well done. <laughs> we live in a content-driven world. We do. So maybe Cork did win, and really, numbers-wise. And at the end of the year, maybe they're the two most famous Gaelic footballers in the world. I don't know. Maybe that, and maybe that's where the, the world is going. I don't know. Why do you hate Cork? I don't. I don't. I'm, for, for the first time in my life, I feel sorry for you. It's but mad. You, yeah, but you physically got uh, really happy there when you were talking about Cork. I just saw you just perked up. No, 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 Colm, that's, that's your paranoia. Um, infamy, infamy, they all have an infamy. Uh, ten minutes past eight this morning, if you want to uh, puncture Colm's Cork paranoia, we'd love to hear from you. You can use the hashtag OTBAM uh, or you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream, as I said. If Tip get to Munster, to the Munster football final, who plays in the Talton Cup? Who plays in the Talent Cup? Well, I actually have uh, the list of teams here if you want to go through it. So the, the only TBCs around Talton Cup entrance at the moment are regarding Tipperary and Westmeath because they're obviously playing this weekend. If they win, they avoid the Talton Cup completely. Because of the fact that they're in the provincial semi-finals already, they've already avoided the Talton Cup preliminary round, which exists. So uh, Ryan McCluskey, formerly of Fermanagh, tweeted yesterday a screenshot from what looked like an official GA document and uh, he said, uh, if this is legit, then Lord of God, who is actually behind it? New York at two buys and then regional games for what reason? Discuss. And what you currently have is a preliminary round which involves Waterford, Carlow, Wexford, London, Wicklow, Leash, Longford, Fermanagh, Antrim, Offaly and Down. And then into round one, you've got confirmed Cavan, Leitrim and Sligo, as well as the two teams that have to be confirmed. What will happen then is that those round one games will be sectioned off into region. So if we assume that Tip and Westmead both lose this weekend, then you're going to have a northern section and a southern section. I was just about to say, and they've gone for the uh, not very often used uh, west and east. No, they're gone for north and south. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what? North and south? I mean, really? And you'd have to say some of the better teams are in the northern section as no. well. No. No. So they get punished. They get punished because they, they exist in Ulster and then they get punished again in the Talton Cup. Yeah, like I mean, maybe the the geographical breakdown of the Alliance League last year was something that the GA really liked and thought to themselves, uh, this is something that we can actually um, get behind. So the northern section at the moment would be Cavan Down, Fermanagh, Antrim, Longford, Westmead, Leitrim, Sligo. The southern section, in fairness, would have Offaly in it and then Leash, Wicklow, London, Wexford, Carlow, Waterford and Tipperary. Again, we're assuming that Tipperary and, and Westmead are going to be in this competition. So the northern section is far stronger if you're if you're a Next northern year it's round team, robin, obviously. Right? Um, Next year, 2023 is going to be the round robin. Yeah. And I think it's still going to be north and south. Right, okay. Well, then that's um, that's not amazing. Like it's uh, Like the whole idea was that we would move away from the fact that 
you are based in Ulster and therefore you are at a disadvantage because you are an Ulster team, you'd like to think that the structure would be able to represent or realise the fact that that is just uh, an inherent uh, unfairness in the competition. But it seems that this sort of notion is, is fairly baked in. All right. Uh, it's 13 minutes past 8 this morning if you want to get in touch we'd love to hear from you the hashtag is OTBAM this is uh, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day Daniel Harris is standing by we're going to get to him next OTBAM this is OTB Sports Radio this is Sport Ireland Campus and here is where it all starts from the little ones learning to the high performance athletes leading here we go to play to practice to progress Here is where communities in the nation come together to compete, to win, and to belong. Here we go to the next level, then on to the world stage. This is Sport Ireland Campus, and here we go. Visit sportirelandcampus.ie to be a part of it. OTB AM. This is OTB Sports Radio. I knew it was going to be a tricky one, but I definitely didn't think there'd be no shots on target. Keep up to date with the latest WSL action. You have to win Dorothy sometimes, every single team, no matter who you are, no matter what fire pair you have. And the biggest interviews. A difference in our style, but it wasn't a difference as to who we are or what our identity as a team were. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTB Sports app now. Paddy, like, oh, what? He goes, Paddy Andrews. I'm like, oh, yeah. And she goes, this is James Hills. He's upstairs. Will I get him? <laughs> the Football Pod with Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue are bringing the show on the road. The first stop for Ireland's biggest and best GEA pod will be the Royal Theatre in Castle Bar on Thursday, June 2nd, as Paddy, James, Tommy and special guests dissect, analyse and celebrate Mayo football, as well as getting stuck into the runners and riders for Championship 2022. Tickets are €20 Euro plus booking fees and are on sale now. See otbsports.com forward slash events for more. OTB AM With Gillette Get into your flow With the new Gillette Labs Razor With exfoliating bar Alright it's 8.15 Daniel Harris is with us Daniel good morning to you How are you getting on? I'm good thanks Hi everyone um, Let's start with the title race briefly I assume it's over at this point Manchester City couldn't possibly Shoot themselves in the foot from here Could they? Um, I mean they could Because way stranger things have happened But it's City in particular, also Liverpool, but City in particular, have mastered winning games in the Premier League. So it would be surprising if they were to avoid winning two of the last three, I suppose. The signing of Haaland, we were having this conversation a little bit earlier on. Um, you know, it's always interesting when the best young available player in the world signs for the league champions. And there's always an assumption um, in many places that this is just going to automatically make them unbeatable. But that's not the case. Very rarely that one player tips a team from really good to great. What's your instinct about how this is going to work out? Well, I think, I mean, if you were to look at the Real Madrid game, if City, you would think if City had Haaland in that fixture, then that ties over in the first leg. It won't sort out their defensive issues. Because this season, I would say, City lack a little bit of ruthlessness at either end and it will address the ruthlessness at the top end of the pitch. It won't make them defend better. And the reason why Pep Guardiola keeps not winning the Champions League is that eventually, if you keep playing good teams, which doesn't always happen, if you look at Liverpool's draw, they haven't really played anyone good following the group stages yet. But you you generally you come across a team, and if you don't defend properly, eventually you come across a team who might be inferior but have have elite level attackers and then you're in you're in there's a possibility you might lose and that's why City if we look at what they've done in Europe 
over the last few years. They haven't really even lost to the, the best teams around. They've been losing to Monaco. They've been losing to Tottenham. They've been losing to Lyon. And that's because they don't defend well enough. And Pep Guardiola's never had a good defence. He's had, he's had teams that mean that are so good you can barely get at the defence but Harlem won't make City defend better but he will make it easier for them to outscore whoever they happen to be against So by that token then it's not inevitable that this is the thing that makes them three out of the next five Champions League winners is it? No it's not but it's possible because Harlem is a monster and you Nothing suggests that he won't turn up and just score loads and loads of goals. You do, you can have a situation in a team where you have one very prolific goal scorer that it can mean you don't get as many goals as you should from everywhere else. Definitely, the players that played with Ruben Nistelrooy, if you definitely thought that about him at the end. I'm not sure they so much thought about him when he was banging them in and holding it up and bringing others into play and all that and creating goals out of nothing. Once he lost his pace, sort of 2004, 2005. Swapping him for Lewis Saha, who was nowhere near as good a player, but much better at bringing other players in and worked much better in the team, was actually a really good move by Fergie. But when these guys are in their prime, they tend to be people that you want to have around because they mean that games where you might not be playing well or whatever, they're able to score score goals out of nothing to create their own goals. Or if you create them one chance, they will find a way of getting it. Of, of scoring and Harlem, I'm sure will give City that, but it won't. He won't make them unbeatable or inept- no, no, because they'll still defend badly with these defenders. Manchester City already have some really good attackers, uh, to say the least. They may not be people who will score 40 goals a season, but they're really, really good. So what happens to, to Gabriel Jesus this offseason? Does Jack Grealish get better having uh, a striker like Haaland beside him? How do you see that constellation of forwards playing out over the next couple of months? Well, I guess what it means is Harlem will play almost every game at centre-forward, so you're not going to see much of Phil Foden playing through the middle anymore. Um, or Jack Grealish, for that matter. Grealish, I thought, was a strange signing because although, obviously, we know he's a good player, he's not someone who really fits into the way City play football. Um, I felt like the, the, the fact that he wasn't used in the Atletico home game in particular didn't look good because that was a game that, to me, was made for Grealish because... We know that Atletico are going to sit back and City are going to have a lot of possession. And one of the ways that you might be able to use Grealish is because in that kind of situation, you might be able to have a few more touches, someone who can conjure your goal out of nothing. But in general play, in the way that City likes to play in most games against most normal opposition, it was kind of hard to see where Grealish might go. And that's still the case. So if he wants to play more football, he'll have to get better. Um, I don't know if he will or not. And he might not be given the opportunity to get better because they've just signed someone who's more, which is more competition for places because Harlem's going to play in every game. So there are going to be fewer places in the team up for grabs for someone like Grealish to have. Gabriel Jesus is probably in trouble. He was signed to be a centre forward. Um, he was signed to take Aguero's place. And Guardiola tried really hard to slot him in instead of Aguero, but it turned out that Aguero was having absolutely none of it and was just too good. And he also probably was able to do more of what Guardiola wanted than Guardiola had supposed. With someone like Jesus, he's obviously good to have in the squad, but he's now, as I said, there's there's now one one position fewer for Jesus to, to play in unless Haaland is injured or being rotated. So he might decide that the time has come to leave. And, but at the same time, it is really hard to leave a club who are basically guaranteeing you medals every season. 
So I don't, I don't know how he feels about that, but it's only possible to keep a player as good as Gabriel Jesus, who's not playing regularly, if you're winning, and City are winning. But he was, he might decide that this is one step too many and decide to get out of there. Like he's obviously been linked with Arsenal, but does Jesus improve most teams in the Premier League outside of Manchester City and Liverpool? Or do you look at Chelsea and Manchester United and Tottenham, obviously, and think to yourself, nah, yes. they couldn't really do with them? Yeah, he, do- yeah he, he does. But does he improve them enough to get them closer to Manchester City and Liverpool? And the answer to that is like, probably, speaking, looking at United, who do need to send it forward. I wouldn't look at Gabriel Jesus to be that centre forward, even if he didn't play for City, because I don't think he's good enough for that. Arsenal might consider him to be someone who is within their price range who might be worth a look. But um, other than that, I think he's probably struggling in England because the clubs in England will be looking at probably younger players or better players. It's interesting to think about what the future constellation of that team will be. Like, what what in the big games next season when Haaland comes in how will they line out and uh, now having an out and out number nine who is the focal point of all the attacks and who is demanding the ball and the chances um, is it the same is it is it Mares on one side Foden on the other and then a similar midfield to what we've seen at the moment or is there somebody who plays as like a number 10 behind the number nine and it's a more I doubt that I mean very few teams have a number 10 what they'll be looking for is they'll be looking for balls coming quickly across the face of goal and that will be Mares, Sterling, Foden. Um, and because that's that's kind of, I mean, Harlan can do lots of things because he's big and strong and powerful enough to run with the ball and to bring others into play. But City scored loads of goals. Think about all the City goals, almost kind of the archetypal City goal. And it was before that, it was one of the archetypal Wenger goals when when, when he had uh, Wiltor on Reed Pires. There was a ball rolled across the face of the goal for someone to tap in from not very far out. And I think that we'll see Haaland scoring a lot of those goals where the ball goes wide, where the build-up's probably quite slow, but then all of a sudden it's boom, 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 the ball goes wide. One or two passes between the full-backs and the wingers, it comes zipped across the goal very quickly and Haaland is the first player at the front post or the first player there for the cutback to, to finish. I think we'll see a lot of those kinds of goals um, because those, that's kind of the, the football that Guardiola is trying to play in the first place. And he's basically signing the best player in the world at getting across the front post quickly. Having someone like Haaland in the squad now is something that's going to give Pep Guardiola a little bit of a, a kick for next season, you'd suspect. It's interesting, though, to weigh up where the, the energy levels are in terms of Pep and his longevity at, at the club. Like, even just listening to his comments the other day about the media being packed full of Liverpool and Manchester United fans, <laughs> it kind of suggests to me this, uh, this sort of mentality that Pep really kind of sees his job as you know the outlier the the guy to prove everybody wrong um yeah what a rebel a rebel yeah (laughs) what a rebel the manager of barcelona Bayern munich and the richest club in the history of football he spent the most money in the history of football while abusing human human rights what an absolute rebel of a maverick um i mean he's pissed off ultimately isn't he and you can understand that and that's part of the way that's part of the makeup of obsessive obsessive winners and we've seen that from Guardiola all the way through his career we've seen it yeah from when he when he left Barcelona and Tito Villanova wasn't well and Guardiola was just obsessed with his football and everything is about this delivering this um this perfect aesthetically perfect football in the manner precisely that he prescribes it and everything is in service of that and this is the highest moral standard is Pep Guardiola's football is a it's not just um 
it's not just an aim, it's a moral standard, and it's that. The moral standard of this football, the moral rectitude of this football, is what enables him to forget about what is enabling him to produce this football and the suffering and human rights abuses that are allowing that to happen. And that's why he's able to go in full honesty and say what he says about everyone supports City, Liverpool and it's not fair on poor City that people don't want them to win. And for number one, I don't think that's true. I think that as clubs, there is much more hatred for Liverpool than there is for Manchester City because Liverpool are, have, are traditionally people, teams that have been successful and teams that have traditionally been successful are teams that are more likely to be hated. And there are obviously various other reasons why people dislike Liverpool. The only reason people care about Manchester City is the human rights. It's not anything to do with City as a club beyond that. It's really, it's the human rights and the manner of the spending of the money that is obviously related to that in a sports watching project. That is why people don't like Manchester City. Otherwise, I think there's much more animus towards Liverpool than there is to Manchester City because it's, in football, grudges grudges go deep because they've been, football's been happening for a long time. So those grudges have been deepening for a long time. And City have only just got, in football terms, City, City are Arabists. They've only just arrived. So there's not been enough time for this hatred of Man City to be enshrined in the mentality of the wider footballing public. Obviously, United hate Man City because they're local rivals. But other than that, I don't think people that I speak to feel that City are generally a better option when they're competing for titles with a and other team because a and other team is likely to be a team that that other club have more history with, so dislike more intensely. So I can understand why Guardiola thinks that because... Being the monomaniacal genius that he is, it's only possible often to see things from your own perspective because that's all you're thinking about. Every minute of every day is that. So it's easy to build that mentality that everyone's out to get you, particularly when people celebrate your downfall. But number one, they're celebrating the that Had someone else had a downfall, they'd be celebrating that. And that's, that's what football is. It's enjoying the misery of others. That's a lot of what competitive team sport is whether it's football or rugby or cricket, your team has, if your team's not winning, then you want all the other teams to lose somehow because that is consoling. I mean, I look at myself as a Man United fan. United got gubbed 4-0 by Brighton at the weekend. And yet this was one of the better weeks being a United fan in recent times because City got knocked out of the Champions League in humiliating style and Liverpool also lost. So looks like they're not going to win the league. And that is part of the parochial, childish nature of football that we love so much. And the 4-0 defeat to Brighton certainly gave the Liverpool fans some comfort uh, over the weekend and the City fans some comfort so. too. It's a, and rightly so, of course. It's a carousel. That. A carousel of shit. Yes. And I guess Guardiola, that's not something because he's not a fan. He's someone intimately involved in a particular team and in doing everything to make that team the best they can be. And he's had a disappointment last week, a significant one, that was a repetition of several other significant disappointments we've seen over and over again. You can understand why he's feeling like the world is against him, but obviously it isn't. Uh, let, let's do a, a quick bit on Manchester United here. The the level that they fall into at the moment, we, again, we've been nitpicking over, uh, is, this, is this the new low? Is it, is it as low as it goes? Um, how long do you think it will realistically take Ten Hag to inject some purpose to the club and how much patience will there be with that? There'll be, there'll be plenty of patience, but the patience, you have to see things improving. So if he starts badly, obviously there'll be pressure because you're manager of Man United and if it's crap, there'll be pressure. But there's 
provided you can see improvements, then people will always be patient while it looks like things are improving and while it looks like there's a plan. And in some ways, it being so bad right now is advantageous to the manager because it means that people are, it's not very difficult to make it better than this because it's so dreadful right now. And also what he's got that other managers before him haven't had is it's obvious that almost that players need to go and players will be going. Mata, Matic, Cavani, um, Pogba, Lingard will definitely go. Baye and Jones will almost definitely go. And so before you've even started, that's quite a lot of room in the squad, quite a lot of money, quite a lot of players to replace. And that's something that Ten Hag will presumably relish. I mean, who knows what sort of job the board will actually do out of making this happen. But with so many players who will 100% be disappearing because it's the end of their contracts, he will have quite a lot of scope to bring in the players that he wants. And during pre-season, he'll have the opportunity to try and drill them in the way that he wants to play football. So I think that it's in a way it's better if you look at the, the other managers coming in Moyes inherited Fergie's team that was full of players who were past their peaks who were able to eke out one last title and he didn't really have the means to sort that out because David Gill left that summer as well and he ended up with one player that was Fellaini then you had Van Gaal coming in who sold good players bought crap players and you had Mourinho having to deal with that whilst buying whilst buying crap players of his own. And then you had Ole, who was stuck with the detritus of everyone, whilst also trying to buy good players. And then the manager now comes in, and it's got to a point where it's so bad, and so many players will go, that actually he's sort of not really dealing with that much mess. He's really, and, and a team that has been compiled by loads of managers with different ideas about how you should play football, he's just sort of able to come in and start doing the things that he wants to do from the beginning. So hopefully that will make things good good or at least better quite quickly well there is a possibility that it takes a while for his ideas to get through to some of those players who have been conditioned under different managers and who are just the wrong players so like unless you can sign eight to ten players quickly and bed them in there's a good chance this team is 10th or in that kind of ballpark in the league table around christmas is there patience for that I'd be there is, but I'd, I'd be surprised. It won't because if it, this team finished second last season. I was thinking about it the other day that at the end of the last day of last season, United were safely ensconced in second. Or they picked like half picked Ahmad and Alanga picked kids to play against Wolves. United went to Wolves and won. These aren't there aren't they're not all terrible players. There are players who are playing at the very trough of their ability, the very bottom of the trough of their ability. So coming in and improving that, a new manager who's actually here to stay. So it's not like the Rangnick situation where the players tossed it off months ago. Well, I don't know. We, know. we don't know how many players it's going to be allowed to sign, but we do know that it's not. it can't be three with all the players that are leaving. It just can't be. And so it shouldn't be that difficult to have a forward line of Jaden Sancho, whoever, whichever forward you sign, and whichever other forward, and, and getting something more out of Marcus Rashford scoring enough goals that you don't finish 10th. It shouldn't be difficult to get more out of a team than that. And when you've got, just when you just signed the decent centre forward, you're going to get much more out of Bruno Fernandes as well. And the, the it's obviously up to Ten Hag to come in and to use his ability, not just as a tactician or a strategist or whatever, but as the leader to make stuff better. That should also be something that the manager's capable of. And that's the manager's job. I Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I don't think United will finish 10th next season. I think that they should be able to make it better enough, quickly enough to be much better than that. Can you see a future for Fred and 
McTominay and those players? Um, like is not, it, is not, it, not really as first team players. I mean, I have sympathy for McTominay because he, he's been the one who keeps playing in the position that isn't his. But obviously he should be playing it better. He looked like, until this season, he looked like he was improving, improving, improving. He's, he's had a dreadful season. I mean, you can't pretend to the contrary. There was a time when McTominay was quite a good first, quite a good first reserve. You knew that he wasn't really good enough to play in midfield for United, but he had good attributes and you saw him using them. He was a good ball carrier. He was good when the ball dropped around the, the edge of the box. He was quite a good finisher. He was good in the air. He was physical. He's just had an absolutely dreadful season. Fred will, again, also, he'll never be good enough, but he's not a bad rotation player in the right system. So whether how much we see in the next season, I guess, depends. Because, again, Tomine has played really at the bottom of his ability level this season. Whatever people say about his ability level not being high enough, which is a fair point, he's, he couldn't play, can't play any worse than he has this season. United will sign a number six, so he won't have to play there again. Um, and he's not someone you would necessarily replace in this round because you've got so much other work to do. And he's not someone who is completely untenable as someone who sometimes plays if he's playing in the right position and in the right system in a team that's playing well. But clearly McTominay and Fred are not going to be fixtures in a team that wins the league anywhere. How long before they're competing for a league title? Um, What's realistic? I think, I think the season after next would be the best case scenario. You'd have to. I don't know how many players they're going to be allowed to buy, but you'd have to nail almost all the transfers, which is always the case with every club that isn't funded by state wealth. That if you want, if you want to compete against Liverpool, who have the greatest manager, in my opinion, the greatest manager of the generation, an all-time great manager, and are nailing every single transfer over and over again, then you need to do that as well. If you're competing against City, who have the, the generation's other greatest manager and state wealth, then you have to the players that you have to come in. You have, you have to nail the transfers and. Ole didn't nail the transfers and that was that was in the end probably the thing that killed him was not signing enough good players and Ten Hag has got the ability to sign quite a few players but he has to sign the right players even though he'll be hopefully better at extracting the most from whoever he signs than but it should take a year probably to let's say United get, get five new players this summer that doesn't seem beyond the realms of possibility five new players that's half a team so a season to settle them in a couple of months to settle them in and to get them playing the way that they want to play and then if they can nail next summer's signings they should be in a position to start pushing but you, until that happens it sounds like a ridiculous thing to say doesn't it yeah and also as well I think that kind of premise is based on the fact that Manchester City and Liverpool and the other clubs around Manchester United stand still to a certain extent. It's banking on the fact that Liverpool don't continue to hit the jackpot with every single signing. And I think Manchester United need to close the gap on a recruitment level to those clubs as well as hoping that the players that they have on the pitch are closing the, that gap as well. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, Liverpool, the thing is, is Liverpool aren't going to, how many players do we think Liverpool are going to sign that this summer? One, two? They're not going to be that much better next year than they were this year, probably. Number one, because... In terms of league points, there aren't that many more league points available that it's realistic to expect them to get. And they're not going to go and refresh the whole team because they don't need to because the team's excellent. So they might sign one or two players this summer. They might not sign even players for the first team. They might sign players who they want to integrate in the first team. So I don't think that Liverpool are going to get loads and loads better this summer. City are obviously signing Holland, which will make them very strong favourites to win the title next season because they look like they're going to win it this season. And they just sign Haaland. Doesn't always work like that. 
But United signed Van Nistelrooy and Veron after winning the title three seasons in a row, but didn't then go and win the league the season after that. But then on the other hand, they didn't. City aren't, they obviously have Stam, City aren't going to go and sell one of their defenders. But there's a limit to how good it's possible for a yeah. football team to get. They're not going to get so good that they win every game by loads of goals all yeah. the time. Yeah. The I think difference. That, and that brings the conversation round full circle again, because I think that there is an assumption from some people that that's what's going to happen with Haaland, that suddenly City ascend to a level that is a combination of uh, Arrigo Saki's Milan. Um, the Liverpool team that won three Champions Leagues in the 70s and 80s and I don't know the Arsenal Invincibles but it's not it's not going to happen they're not going to we can't just pencil them in for the next Champions League and the one after that by virtue of I agree like, Saki's Milan only won one Serie A with their famous winning the Champions League but they only won one with the European Cup but they only won one Serie A so I mean things never work out in the way that you expect them to because if they did, we wouldn't really be watching it. You no. know that roughly how it's going to go, or at least seeing Liverpool probably going to be near the top of the league next season. At least until but, the semi-final stage of the Champions League, we have a fair idea how it's going to go. But then mayhem happens, and that's why we keep tuning in, I think. Yeah, because when like football is a chaotic game and goals are scarce, so the best team won't always win because it's about producing it on that day. And City, yeah, City, obviously, they're going to be better with with uh, with Haaland and what what Liverpool and what Liverpool and City have that United don't have, and what Chelsea don't have either, and what Arsenal don't have is the belief that they can win any game from any situation. City don't they don't have it in the Champions League, but in the league, they expect to go out every game and win. And you watch United play recently, which is where we were talking we were talking about as well. They don't have anything like that belief. They're sort of waiting for something to happen, and that is that's um, that's something that um, Ten Hag will have to work with is mentally this this side are completely on its arse and that's one yeah. of the reasons that sometimes you think well just a couple of the players but actually the more the greater churn this summer the better because it feels like a lot of these players are finished as Man United players because not just because their ability isn't where it needs to be but mentally to produce the level that they've been producing over the last few months makes you think that they're not people that you think you'd be able to rely on in no. any sensible bid to win anything any of the big any of the big parts good stuff Daniel thanks a million cheers cheers everyone have a good day it's Daniel Harris OTBM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day MJ Maloney says signing 21 year old Haaland for 63 million instead of 29 year old Kane for 150 million is surely one of the best deals around but again City will get criticism for spending money uh, they will because them's the rules and and nobody's criticised City for spending money poorly um, well, I mean, they spent a lot of money on their defence and they conceded loads of goals in the big games. Not in this deal, it's a brilliant deal. Like, getting him for his bio clause, getting to the point where that bio clause was inserted. Mm. They are definitely playing chess. They've conceded the fewest amount of goals in the Premier League this season. I know you're referring to the Champions League. They would give up all their uh, recent Premier League titles for one Champions League. Paul McGee says, Daniel's so right, I'm smiling here at his autopsy of Manchester United. You'll never walk alone. Brian says, Fred's a whole lot better than McTominay and has much more use as a squad or first choice. Scott McTominay wouldn't stand out playing for Norwich. He's dreadful, says Mr. Quina. I I wonder, is McTominay one of those players who Ten Hag can turn into something? Um, And maybe he's a forward. John Wayne and Aston says, Special Agent Gerrard will roll over against Liverpool tonight and will go like the hammers of hell against City in the last match it's going to be too late by then John I think I think McTominay's a forward well that's where he started yeah Um, that's where he started and he's certainly not a defensive midfielder he's certainly not an elite one no 
8.40 this morning. Uh, a reminder, if you want to get in touch with us, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Um, right. The football pod is going on tour and their first stop could be nowhere other than Mayo. It's uh, Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue who both have very special memories against Mayo and so we figured we'd let the people of Mayo come and touch the garments. Uh, it's in the Royal Theatre in Castle Bar at half past six on Thursday the 2nd of June. Tickets are flying. If you want to get one, get on to uh, Ticketmaster now. You can also get them otbsports.com forward slash events. Stay tuned to OTB for details on more shows to come. Now, time for the papers. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, I'm a, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not. Yes. No. Okay, I think we can start with uh, otbsports.com. Yeah. Um, so did Joey Carby let Ben Healy down it's Monday Night Rugby that conversation last night Paul Pogba to Manchester City the football show discusses no is what we think but um, stranger things have happened uh, the Irish Times has started with their referee review from Owen Doyle a hard lesson to learn you cannot depend on the TMO as a referee that's the story there the uh, back page of all of the English papers has uh, Erling Haaland who has agreed a five-year deal to join City and Klopp says the title race would be boring without Liverpool which is true that is correct as he was apologising for his uh, post-match comments the other day uh, plans for new Rugby World Championship top 12 nations to fight for title every two years so it's a new competition which has no name it's called like the Nations Championship uh, they like their championships. The Times, the London Times, can reveal that the working plan for the new two-tiered competition is for the top division to be founded in 2026. So we're, f- what, four years away from this. Twelve teams, England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, France and Italy. So the full six nations. The uh, old tri-nations as it was, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, and then Argentina, Fiji and Japan, making up the 12. There'll be a summer tour and a November tour. And at the end of it, there will be, I think, a grand final to crown the world nations champion how does this float your boat like this has been something that's been mentioned quite a bit and i think the one question i'd have is how does the world cup get affected in terms of its stature and how does this get affected in terms of the fact that there's that actual world cup to decide the best team in the world yeah i think the world cup is still the actual world cup where everybody goes to one place and plays and there's a draw and i think that's what really matters and this is like to make sure that the friendlies the tests mm. all have meaning. Yeah. Yeah, like you can see... It's a glorified Nations Cup. Yeah. Uh, and you can kind of see why, why they want to move that way. And also the question then is around the outside the top tier of nations. Like, obviously, you mentioned their, their sort of involvement there, but how they would be benefited or otherwise from this. Well, there's promotion and relegation. So uh, Argentina, Fiji, Japan, if they get relegated, Italy, if they get relegated, go down to tier two because we'll never get relegated. And then um, the top two teams come up from the challenger division, as it's called. The Emerging Nations League, Samoa, Tonga, the United States, Canada, Uruguay, Chile, Namibia, Georgia, Romania, Spain, Portugal and the Netherlands. I don't know. Is it better than the us going to New Zealand for three tests? I mean, I like the I like the Australian tests. I like the uh, New Zealand and South African. But when we got to Argentina, it's kind of like, does this matter? It doesn't really. No, and yeah, I like it. It's not just Argentina either. Maybank holiday. Erling gets time off to complete sixty-four million city transfer. Pound sterling. Uh, Red still believing Tuchel in turmoil. That's because he had a row with Marcus Alonso. I don't have the back page of the Irish Independent. Uh, you won't be able to find it there if you if you have it. Uh, City Hall, Hall, City Hall. 
Holland. Is it? Are we saying Holland? Yeah, I think Holland. Right. Like I mean, but over time we'll start saying Holland. Pep gets his man a strike sensation. Erling agrees to sign stunning Blues deal. Uh, it's kind of it's very uh, anticlimactic, really, isn't it? Um, City Hall, Hal delays Rooney for Wayne when Rooney might be leaving. And Munich I Mane. This is the big story from the back. Liverpool striker shock target for German giants. Maybe um, Serge Gnabry's agent met with Bayern Munich. Serge Gnabry's agent is also the agent for Sadio Mane, and so there is a possibility that Sadio Mane was brought up in conversation. He is in the same contractual situation. Would he be more or less important than Salah? Would you rather have if you only you can only have one of them? Who are you picking? Oh, Salah. Uh, like if I mean I see in those reports that uh, Mane's representatives met by Munich representatives in Mallorca because that's the only place where you can obviously have a meeting instead of like um, going into like the, 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 the den of Munich or bringing somebody over to Liverpool all agents uh, meetings take place in sunny climes it seems um, and the other tabloid stories which we're going to be covering in depth over the next few days uh, it's not the bionic manhood that's not the story that I'm looking for there it's the uh, Wag of the Christie trial finally starts I know you're going to be all over this one it's the biggest story of the year Rebecca Vardy versus Colleen Rooney it looked like Rebecca Vardy was like stealing back into the um, the winning enclosure as like all the details of her uh, textual relationship with her agent slash manager disappeared a series of unfortunate events a phone in the North Sea a computer that no longer worked and the only remaining source being the journalist who broke the story and sure look he can't give up his source can he the lawyers for Wayne Rooney for Colin Rooney were saying we're not sure that the same standards of journalism apply to tittle tattle gossip about an Instagram account as it would do to like you know uh, the government I'm not sure I agree with that. I agree with it a little bit. Maybe be good if they just leaked, the, leaked them, wouldn't it? See what the texts were. Yeah. I don't know. Tittle tattle, government. It's all the same thing, really, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. That's um, You've won that one. All right, Carl Milani's with us, Carl. Good morning to you. Hey, lads. How's it going? What's going on? Not too bad. All good. Are you looking forward to the Talton Cup? Yes, I am. Uh, I think the soundings have been generally positive. Um, the draw is next Sunday or Monday, I think. Did, did you know the draw was geographical based? No. Uh, I think that emerged the first that I heard of that was I think Andy Moore mentioned it in his post-match stuff at the weekend uh, that was the first I think it's caught quite a few people by surprise and where's the border are we just giving Connacht to the north is that how it works uh, I think it's north-south and where, what, what's that like south yeah. of Dublin north of Dublin is it the M50 is it Athlone is it like the it's six counties West, the Westmeath Offaly border well that's the thing is. that Westmeath could be thrown into the northern section yeah uh, where you've got possibly down you've got down you've got Sligo you've got Leitrim so Sligo or Sligo's the north? Yeah, yeah, I have Westmead in the north here and yeah. I have Offaly in the south. So, the, but the argument is that... On what basis? Where's your evidence Because Westmead is more northerly than Offaly. Where's your evidence for that? And that's it. I can give you evidence for that one. Yeah. Look at a map of Ireland. Educate yourself. I mean, you know... Like, Westmead speak with Ulster accents. They, I mean, uh, like, you know, we do understand the planet is spinning, right? You don't go up the north, really. You don't okay, actually go up we, the north. You can call it half one. You don't go down ha- south. Ha- half two. In half one, we have Down, Cavan, Leitrim, Sligo, and in yeah. half two. It seems a bit arbitrary, and it kind of seems like it's missing a big opportunity it here is, to have like is. Clare play Antrim, and it, yeah. So we, we we could very well end up with Antrim versus Fermanagh in the Talton Cup. Now, in fairness, I wonder is it just are they worried about crowds and supporters having to travel long distances, and whether you know if it was Clare versus or not Clare versus Antrim, but if it was 
similar geographical distance that supporters mightn't be tempted to travel as far as they would. But I think from, from a player's point of view, maybe they would rather the open draw in terms of just, uh, I sense there's probably familiarity with teams that are so geographically close to them because challenge matches and the league, of course, was organised on that sort of basis in COVID times as well. So Yeah, COVID's over though, right? We, we, we recovered from it, I think. It. That's yeah. the, Owen had the best idea and he gave it away for nothing. It was like, perhaps what they're doing here is they're setting up Friday Night Lights where there's just an agreement that like, look, Let's try Friday. I know yeah. there's been a backlash from some players in the past about, oh, we've got to work. But like, you know, you yeah, don't but train I think, in the I think nice. they should try that. I think they should try that. No, no, you can't do that. Well, the, the thing with that is, and it's same at club level, if you give players notice, they'll make it work. So you can make it work. And then you've got your weekend to yourself. Exactly. We so, can recover. Yeah. Be, be interested though, say if Leitrim gets Sligo, Sligo get home advantage the game. Clashes with a Rovers match on a on a Friday night. Uh, with with that, oh, with the people of Sligo stand for that. <laughs> that's that's maybe one of the the yeah. uh, sporting uh, minefields that you could wade into with with Friday night lights in the middle of the summer. Mm. Um, but no, I think the soundings have been generally quite positive towards the Talchin Cup. Uh, look, it, I mean, uh, it's really a um, bit of a dog's dinner solution to um, a problem that's very straightforward that we could have fixed, that we had the right fix for in, on the table and for whatever reason it didn't get through and proposal B is dead as it stands. But the geographical element of this, I think, doesn't make any sense. And hopefully, but it, next year, apparently, they're going to persist with it and there'll be a round robin where it will be like three Ulster teams playing each other in a round robin. Yeah, that doesn't really make any sense. <gasps> that, yeah, like especially considering this geographical element, as you said, was concocted because of COVID reasons to try and keep the disease local. Well, that, that uh, it just kind of like did they decide on the geographical element of the Talton Cup pre-COVID? That I don't know. I had to be fair, so maybe, maybe it's completely separate. But it does feel like a continuation of last year's national leagues. Uh, which I mean, it, it was just a mini Ulster Championship in Division One anyway for half of Division One. So yeah, t- like I mean, making this thing in the round robin situation next year geographical makes no sense whatsoever. When, as I say, the entire reason to bring in a new format was to base things on a meritocracy rather than the exact opposite of that, which the provincial championships are. And then the provincial championships are really important for this year's Talton Cup anyway, in that you get grandfathered into the next round if you made the semi-finals. Yeah. Yeah, like and and in fairness, t- Tipperary and Westmeath, being in Munster and Leinster, uh, both have an advantage as opposed to say Cavan because they'll have easier games. Well, like easier games, they probably won't make it. Like I mean, maybe Tipperary have a have a chance of making it, but um, they have easier games in order to avoid the Talton Cup, and that that is patently unfair, you'd have to say. Right. Mm. What else is going on, Carl? Well, Stephen Jarrett says he's not overly concerned about the Premier League title race as Aston Villa side welcome his former club Liverpool to Villa Park tonight. The visitors, of course, still in the hunt for the title. They're three points off Manchester City with three games left to go. But Jarrett insists his focus is on his current team. That uh, game kicks off tonight at eight o'clock. Meanwhile, here last night at home in the SSE Artricity League Premier Division, Graham Burke scored a hat-trick in 14 second half minutes to help Shamrock Rovers move to the top of the table. He was on target in a 3-1 win over Sligo Rovers at Tallaght Stadium. Derry City dropped 
dropping to second. They were held to a nil-all draw by St. Pat's. Shamrock Rovers play Derry City on Friday evening. In Gaelic games, an injury blow for the Cork footballers. Kevin Flav will miss the rest of the season. He's been ruled out due to a knee injury he suffered in Saturday's defeat to Kerry in the Munster Championship. Mead, though, could be set for a boost with the return of former captain Shane McEntee for Sunday's Leinster football semi-final with Dublin. He's currently at home on a break from a tour of duty with the Defence Forces and could feature in that game at Crow Park. It's understood he trained with the panel last weekend. On the field last night, Kilkenny clinched the Leinster under-20 hurling title. They beat Wexford by 1.13 to 15 points. Jack Doyle scoring the decisive goal there. They'll, set, they'll play Limerick in the All-Ireland final which is uh, due to take place on the weekend after next. The under-20 football final has been fixed for Pork Sean McDermott in Carrick and Shannon this Saturday between Kildare and Tyrone. In golf, 15-time major winner Tiger Woods and defending champion Phil Mickelson have both been confirmed in the field for next week's US PGA Championship. The year's second major will be played at the Southern Hills Country Club in Tulsa. Woods made his competitive return to the sport at last month's Masters, while Mickelson hasn't played a tournament since February, of course, on the back of his controversial comments regarding the Saudi Golf League. And in boxing, Finally, Mayo straw, uh, strawweight Shannon Sweeney is the latest Irish boxer. Between the ropes today at the Women's World Championships, she faces Aldana Florencia Lopez of Argentina for a place in the last 16. So you didn't make the cut for the uh, Irish Open media day down in Mount Julius? I just heard about that on the way in there. Right, OK. What a, what a nice gig. Yeah, it's a lovely gig. Nathan yeah. is there. Apparently, he, he's the most important golfer in OTV Towers. Not the best, just the most important, <laughs> as, as appointed by... Oh, it says Nathan Murphy appointed himself. <laughs> Sometimes it's uh, just a, f- a fact that the people who hold the raffle win the raffle. It's like, um, I guess there's like a, a certain nature to the club that they have in Golf Weekly where they're pretty protective of their own standards. They don't want any kind of younger, fresher face coming in and <laughs> making them realise what. Beating them. Beating them. Exactly. They, were, they were apparently uh, all saying, confirmed that you are the best golfer, Carl, uh, last oh. night on OTV. Uh, uh, well, I mean, no one has seen me play, so I'm happy this to is definitely, hang on to that we're, title. We're trending towards a playoff here. Yeah, we're yeah, definitely yeah. trending towards a playoff. Yeah. Well, what would be on the line? Well, that's it's, the thing. What's the What's the purse? A belt. Okay. Some Some kind of belt. Belt. Can a we get, jacket. Like an OTB jacket. Definitely uh, an OTB jacket. Yeah, a green jacket. A red. Like, there's definitely some sort of Mayo Sligo sort of. I mean, ceding land to one of the other counties should one of those people uh, lose, which yeah. would be good. Um, Maybe we get Ballina or. Charlestown Why would you want that? But like, I mean, it could be a surprise. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think we should make it happen. Thought you'd made peace with the good people of Mayo. Ballinad's actually a lovely town. S- scratch below, scratch below the surface for a second, and it's not. Um, right, Carl, good stuff. Thanks, Thanks very much. See it's eight fifty-four this morning. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, Erling Haaland has missed 16 games for Dortmund in 2021-2022 with three separate injuries. Is Haaland too injury prone? Perhaps, or maybe he knew what was happening at the end of the year and he's like, am I really going to risk my bad hamstring slash hip slash whatever injury? Uh, Ana Carroll says, Guardiola had no time for Ibrahimovic at Barca. Haaland is essentially a younger version of Ibra. He's not though, is he? They're very different players. Yeah, I can see kind of the... They're both uh, tall. And they're both number nine. I think maybe is, is the point due to the fact, well, I suppose he's saying he's a younger version of Ibra, but I think what uh, might be a little bit more worrying is just, I guess, Guardiola's relationship with number nines in general. Like, um, it's it's obviously not something that he employs too much and it's something that he can get by without. I just think that if you're spending this amount of money, you're you're building your attack around him. And that means a change from what has been a pretty well-firing attack this, this year. Whether, he's a, whether or not he's a younger version of Ibra, I, I don't think so. He's better than Ibra. Haaland. 
what's, what's with the silence there as a uh, sort of like stumbled uh, upon a hot take here? Well, uh, it's early. It's early. Haaland is definitely going to be better than Ibrahimovic. Well, just like here's the definitely thing. is a stupid word to say with regards to sport in any um, capacity. Uh, you're, you're you're just assuming the next ten years are the same level of brilliance as they have been up to this point, or close to it. Yeah, and and I think that that's, that that takes a level above. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Now, Anthony Nash, former core curler, joins us now as part of the AirGrid timing sponsorship launch. AirGrid Ireland's grid operator is now in its seventh year as the official timing partner of the GA. Anthony, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Well, Les, how are you keeping? Yeah, good. Um, I, I'd be more happy to talk about golf, though, than hurling, if that's OK, if you want to continue that talk. <laughs> what are you playing off? One. All right. All right. Well, a bad one, yeah. Well, how the hell did you get the time to be a, a golfer off one when you were, like, you know, married, know, married right? to when the I, GA as you were? Yeah, when I was playing, I was off about six, um, and I hardly ever played my handicap, but since I finished, I already got a few lessons and stuff, and I've taken a bit more serious. Um, but, uh, yeah, I love it. I've always loved it. When I was young, my father got me into it, like, so every time it was my break from my break from hurling was golf, like, so just absolutely loved it and still do. It's certainly my favourite sport, so uh, when you started talking about your battle there, I was wondering how could I wangle my way into a four-ball oh, there. No problems. I'd say you're uh, short <laughs> off the tee, are you? That's my, that's my prediction uh, here, is that you don't hit the ball very far at all. <laughs> I, I hit it. I hit it far enough, but it can be far enough left and right as well. That's the issue. <laughs> and are you like a standard left hand on top? Yeah. Proper grip. No, I'm. I, I'm actually. I, I actually hurl golf the same way as I hurl. So I have my right hand on top, but I'm left sided. Um, so I actually have the hurly grip um, for the left hander. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I have the right hand on top of the golf club as well. So I actually have the proper golf. golf so you grip play. There. You play golf left handed. Yeah, yeah. I would have turned myself inside out on the hurling field to get onto my left hand side, like so. I was never going to chance uh, chance right. the right hand side. And are you so. actually left-handed? Uh, oh God, you're going to make me out to be a right weirdo here now. So I write my right, but if I was throwing, I throw my left hand. So wow, um, proper yeah, ambidextrous. Yeah, she's like, it sounds good, but I don't know am I any good at either one of them. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, as I said, like just it, it fits in perfectly for golf. And did, uh, absolutely love it. Did your coach try and knock the hurling grip out of you, or did he say to to you? No, no, no. Like it's actually perfect. For, it's it's a golf grip for a left sider. Yeah, it's actually the oh, perfect sorry. grip. Okay. Golf, yeah. So um, uh, if I was right sided, yeah, I'd have a cack handed. Um, but yeah, absolutely spot on. So I'm wondering, was I a golfer playing hurling uh, instead of the other way around? So, oh man! Uh, and if you could go back to yourself as a 16 year old, would you be like, give up oh, that old hurling? We're going, we're golf, going making money. Golf, golf, golf. I don't think I've ever met. I'm good friends with I'm good buddies with John Murphy from Kinsale, and like I play golf with him. I played with him one day, and I said, "You're playing golf. I don't know what the hell I'm playing." Like you know, he's just. Like the the level of amateur golf even is is scary. So and I, I'd be country miles off that. Um, so it's 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 frightening what the young fellas can do nowadays with golf. So I, I don't if I, I think if I tried golf I wouldn't have made it at that either. So I think I made the right decision. What's your club? Your golf club? Uh, Lee Valley. It was always Cantor, but I'm uh, Lee Valley. No, Lee Valley in Cork. So um, absolutely, yeah, love it up there. Great crack up there as well. Very good. Well, we'd be happy to continue this, but we do have. Yes. To, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we right, okay. we do to have hurl. to bring up the hurling. So, um, what, yeah. what, what, what is the story in Cork at the moment? So, like I was saying there, I was doing something there last week, and I was saying it's very reminiscent of our 2016 year where we lost to Wexford um, in Turles, and Wexford were coming. No, like Liam Dunn was over the team, and it was before Davey went in, so they were always strong, but they weren't at the top table at the time, and we felt, I suppose, that we had a chance after like winning, you know, like 13, 14, and we were doing okay. Like, but 16, it just, everything just capitulated. Everything we tried to do went wrong. Um, and it just felt wrong throughout the whole year. And you were trying to convince yourself that you had a chance. You know, you always had a chance, but like looking back on it, we never did. And it just seems to be the same. Um, seems to be the same at the moment, whatever. It's either the, 
the game plan just isn't working or just the whole mood in the camp isn't good, but it's just, it just doesn't seem to be right at the moment anyway, don't there? And how do you fix something like that? Like, like I, I was saying, like, like trying making things exciting again, and I, I would change the team around a little bit. No, you can't throw the baby out with the batwater, right? You can't change the game plan completely, but even a movement of one or two players just to make it exciting, like like for on, on Sunday against Watford, I would put Patrick Corrigan at centre forward, um, just to change things up. And like you know, I know a lot of teams, I know Cork are the same, like they're measuring off GPSs and you know uh, kilometres ran and all this stuff, like but. Like, I don't understand why we can't try something different. Um, he plays it far for Glen Rovers and even a little change like that and make Ty to work and think about, you know, sitting off him so much. And um, and plus the game plan they're playing, he's not getting that much ball inside in the full forward line anyway. They seem to be working the ball out to midfield, trying to get the perfect delivery and it's delayed in at that stage. So even a little change like that, I think might just, you know, it's something that just needs to change. You can't change the whole thing, obviously, but just a little tweak, maybe just to make it a little bit more exciting again. The Level of criticism has been fierce and sustained and I think Cork Hurlers are kind of one of those premium brands that is always prone to overreaction either side and things are going great, they're the greatest team of all time but when things are going yeah. in any way bad they are literally the worst team that you've ever seen they're not trying to leg, everything is wrong the management is wrong, the strength and condition is wrong the attitude of the players is wrong they don't want to play for Cork everything is being levelled at them at the moment like you've recently been associated with this group of players you know them intimately mm-hmm. is there any truth in any of that? So like it's funny like when Cork win their first league game we see up on Twitter fellas books the tickets for the Burlington the night dollar in a final do you know what I mean like so Cork supporters they're funny like you know they, get, they, they, they follow us to the end like they're brilliant um, and I think you actually summed it up to perfection like there's no seems to be no middle ground with us we're either terrible or brilliant uh, I look, I, I find it very hard after coming out and I do a bit of media work and stuff like that and I find it very hard to kind of criticise a player because I know the effort that goes in um, like I can guarantee you the effort is going in in training I can guarantee you that they're going out and they're trying their level best and just sometimes a year happens whereby like again it's not that I'm a suit or a, you know pinning it on a game plan but maybe the game plan just isn't you know uh, suiting the opposition they're playing like they're trying to run the ball out against Limerick and Waterford and it's just when they bring an intensity against you, you know, it, it's probably not the best way to do it. And in Tipperary on Sunday showed that when you kind of try and move the ball away from the tackle point, you know, that that's the way to beat these teams if you can, you know, and they obviously couldn't sustain it for 70. But like the players, I'm telling you now, like I know they're, as you said, they're probably being told that they're soft, that they don't work and all this. It's it's not true. It's not true. Like they're giving five nights of their week up to, to train and play for Cork. Um and you know maybe it's just not good enough this year. I don't know. It, like it's not all over. You know it's not an you know impossibility to go down to Watford and win. It's probably an improbability. Like because when you look at it, you you have to look at their last three games: Limerick in in the or sorry Watford League final, Limerick in the championship, and Clare in the championship. The intensity, I suppose, or the you know the the game plan didn't fit at the right time. So I, I, I don't know. Um, I'd hope that they get a kick. Like and I think the Tipperary performance against Limerick for an outside person like myself looking in would give Cork hope of you know, putting in that one last shift to hopefully get over the line and keep themselves in the championship. Well, it, it's another, it's not an All-Ireland final because there's no medal at the end of it, but it's like a season-defining end of season. It's, it's more than a season-defining game. I think it's a career-defining game for a lot of people. I Like, you know, down in Cork, they're talking about the management being gone already. They're talking about certain players being gone already and all this stuff. Like, it, it is a career-defining game for me, for a lot of a lot of those players in management. Um <clears throat> because to think about it, like being in May and being out of the championship, I know it's the way the championship has gone and it's the way the format is, but it'll be a very long year for, for Cork and having to go down to Tipperary and the dead rubber would be just brutal altogether. So so what happens then if they lose, if it's a career-defining game? It, will, will there be a big turnover of players then I, in the off-season? 
Um, like it depends. Like the big thing is what the county board will do. Like there was talks of the management being offered an extra year um, during the league campaign. Now whether that is still there or not, I don't know. Um, like see, like you hear, you, you know yourselves as the rumours. And as you said a while ago, there the rumour mill about you know Cork being brutal and players doing this, and that's ripe at the moment in Cork. And I, I do feel sorry. And the one thing I feel sorry about is players' families. Like that's why I always find it very hard to criticise individuals, um, because it's not them getting hurt. Because as players, we like we use some read papers or listen into stuff, um, but their family do. So like the, the big thing here is what the county board decide to do. Like are they going to extend the management for that one year? And if that is the case, then you know a lot of players might turn up. But if a new manager comes in, you're at the. It's like you're talking soccer there a while ago. Like a new manager comes into a club. Like you don't know what he's going to do with his squad, and it's the same. It's the same in hurling. Um, so I think if they lose to Waterford, I think there's going to be a big sit down. Uh, I think they'll have to be looking at stuff, but whether it's the management going or whether a change of it, or you know, as in adding to it or whatever. Like there are two new coaches are just in, like Noel Farlang and Pat Mulcahy. So you know, I suppose they find it very hard to not give them a second year. But uh, again, look, it's 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 the county board's decision to make. So, um, but it wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that, if that did happen. Like it's interesting, like that the questions automatically go a bit higher than the team as well, given that they've been in the under twenty finals eighteen, nineteen, and then one of the following two years after that, that there is questions about how is this young crop of players being taken to the next level in terms of fitness and strength and conditioning. Is your sense that those elements are being looked after well enough, or is there still a bit of work to be done in, in those areas? So, so when I came out, like I still have uh, very good friendships with the players. So, like when I'm doing stuff like this, or I'm doing other stuff for media. I, I tend to stay away from the players talking about hurling like that because I don't want them to feel like that I'm taking stories that they're they might be saying to me or asking me for advice and you know what I mean. So like from what I gather, like they have a very professional setup inside there. Like Stephen Casey's the SC coach is supposed to be brilliant, you know. So I'd say they are, but like what people have to understand, right, is that like under twenty hurling, like years ago under twenty one hurling was you know, you were 20 going on 21 or whatever like that. A lot of these guys could have been 18 playing, you know, under 20 hurling just out of under 17. So that crop of players probably aren't developed yet. And a lot of them like are typical park hurlers where, you know, they're like, you know, I'm small, like we're, we're lovely hurlers and we just haven't bred a few, you know, uh, Carrot Hegarty's, I suppose, for want of a better description yet. You know, like Mark Keane coming home from Australia was obviously a huge boost that he chose hurling and like this year he's probably bedded in so hopefully you know if, if next year goes again that he's hurling will improve and he'll be challenging for positions and stuff like that but um, you know it, it's very difficult to speak from the outside um, of what's going on inside uh, but there's look uh, like they could turn around on Sunday and have a great win and as you said a while ago the Cork support could be you know cock a hoop again and off we go again but um, I, I think I, I think that there is something that like again that reminds me so much of 16 like where like I did a, a shop opening a bike shop opening in 2016 for my friend and he was expecting a crowd to turn up, myself and Alan Cadigan. Four people turned up, and two of them turned up to just abuse us. Like you know, so it was just so reminiscent of everything going around. Wow, what was that like? Like when you think, uh, yeah, terrible. Like because like the year itself, like I want like when you finish a career, we've done a call. Callan came in and spoke to us once, right? And they had lost with Munster in a, in a game that um, I can't remember which which campaign it was. And he said to us that how lucky we were that our season was about to start because he'd have given his left hand to be at the start of his season again. And he had to wait a full summer to go again. And in 16, that was how I felt for 17. I wanted just to be back in the training field and right the wrongs, you know what I mean? So, like, as a player, you just can't wait to get out there again. And that winter for me was probably the worst because the abuse we were getting, you know, was questioning about, like, everyone was about to be dropped and all this stuff. Like, And, and all Kieran did at that stage was he brought Pat Ryan in as coach. Um, and 17, we were down to win Munster again, you know, and challenge another in semi-final. So, like, it could be just one little thing like that that could take, you know, it could change in the season currently even. Yeah, the the last thing about this that I'm just interested in is like how close you feel they are, and and I guess this comes down to the change of style, right? Last year they reached an All Ireland final, 
the Ireland final was obviously a historic performance from Limerick and you'd have to argue like a really bad performance from Cork as well factored into that so it wasn't all just Limerick were amazing it was like Cork did not perform on the day and so they, I guess they went over the winter we're going to have to do something different if we're going to to uh, overcome this you can't do that in one season and they're in the middle of this transition and the transition is breaking down a little bit because players are falling back on old habits like if you're going to have a future with this group you kind of need to commit to them and these are the hard yards that they need to wade through yeah, big time. Like I look at Kilkenny at the moment. Like, and I, I didn't think there last week. And I was saying, like, that how many teams have we ever seen go back to a goalkeeper in Kilkenny under Brian Cody? Like that never happened. And then, like, they got turned over a couple of times against Galway. But like, you're doing the right thing by gaining possession. Like the one thing about Cork is, I feel that they're with the game plan from last year was they got the ball and they attacked at pace. Like they were gone. There was numbers overlaps being created. And this year they're just holding onto that ball for that extra second and maybe hand-passing sideways more laterally than going forward again. So I think that was the biggest change. I don't know why that has come into us because, as you said, at last year, once dollar in the final, the team's frightened with their goal um, creation. So, you know, I, if, I felt if they'd have kicked on with that and continued with that to create, create headaches. But, like, when they're kind of holding on to the ball in the defence, you're allowing opposition to first set up in their defence and second of all to attack you, you know, as in, like, their corner forwards tackling the corner back. So hopefully they'll go a little bit more, you know, um, forward earlier I'm not I'm not a, like a massive edge of the square driving the ball but like get out of the defence a bit quicker and get to the delivery point around the middle of the field and go back to the car curling with diagonal balls into the corner you know what I mean and that's what the forwards would want as well but like you're 100% correct if, if this is what they're trying to do they have to stick with him and as, as I just as I said a second ago like Brian Cody has obviously got Paddy Deegan sitting in the defence going backwards on Murphy who can then create the ball of course there's going to be mistakes but you have to bear with it and stick with it to get the, to get the good days yeah good stuff Anthony great to have you with us this morning thanks a million that was really great interesting stuff. cheers thanks, it's Anthony Nash there former Cork goalkeeper joining us as part of the Airgrid timing sponsorship launch Airgrid Ireland's grid operator is now in its seventh year as the official timing partner of the GAA um, will Cork sticker twist what do you think I think as you kind of put to him there there's a big case we made that they kind of have to stick at this point particularly in the season then it's in the off season what happens next do the management get that extra year of a deal and if there's new management in will they take a, a brush to the whole thing like this is a team that came back from the dead it looked like against Kilkenny in the All-Ireland semi-final last year and got to an All-Ireland final they have great underage talent coming through The if you zoom out of Cork things look good it's just in the, the kind of mire this season so far and in the championship so far specifically where things are just like a complete mess Alright it's uh, 10 minutes past nine this morning. Now, All Black Great and Legend of the Game, Dan Carter has established the DC10 Fund. It's a dedicated fundraising platform in partnership with UNICEF Aotearoa New Zealand that will provide critical funding, support and advocacy of UNICEF's work to empower child rights in the Pacific. Since 2016, Dan has partnered with UNICEF to raise awareness of the situation for children around the world. And uh, during a 2019 UNICEF-supported visit to a Syrian refugee camp in Jordan, he saw firsthand how important it was for children to have an education, a safe environment and hope for the future. Following his retirement from professional rugby, he wanted children just like his own to experience happy childhoods and subsequently set up the DC10 Fund to raise funds for UNICEF's work for children around the world. I'm delighted to say Dan is with us this morning. Dan, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Good morning. I couldn't have explained that better myself. Um, thank you for, for having me on the show. Yeah, no worries. I can only begin to imagine what it's actually like to go and see something like what you saw in Syria firsthand. And, um, you know, if you have an experience like that, the important thing, I think, is to carry it with you as much as you possibly can, as opposed to putting it in a compartmentalised little box and saying, well, I've experienced that now 
and I have to, you know, get back to my normal life where actually life is good. So how do you how do you make sure that you carry that with you and it is something that you're constantly trying to fold into your activities? Yeah, it's um It really does put your life into perspective. Um, I'm a firm believer of um, gratitude and actually working on gratitude. Um, So every day I write three things that I'm really grateful for. Um, And, you know, every now and then you find yourself complaining or or moaning or unhappy or even you see your children, um, you know, complaining about something or they want some extra time on their iPads or some really little things. And then you go into a refugee camp like, like I did in Jordan, um, where these children, these families, they had to escape from war um, in Syria. So they've fl- um, fled their own country and uh, through the work that UNICEF have done, uh, is doing around the world, they were at a refugee camp. And so, so I got the opportunity to, to visit this place and it blew me away. These children that were doing it tough, you wouldn't know because they were so grateful for anything that they had. So we threw a rugby ball around and they were laughing, they were smiling. And I walked away from this visit really motivated and inspired. I thought I was going there to, to help put a smile on their face, but I was the one um, that walked away from this environment feeling motivated and inspired by these incredible children that were doing it so tough but yet you wouldn't know because they were just so grateful for any meal that they got they were so grateful for any little bit of exercise or fun that they had it was it blew me it blew me away and then i returned back home and, and obviously i got um my own family and and it just put everything into perspective and i was like look my children are really lucky to have the lives that they live. I want to be able to do more because I realise that not every child, especially in third world countries, underprivileged children, don't have the access to simple things like clean water, to to good nutrition, to education. So um, when I finished playing, oh, I felt at that moment, I felt like I wanted to do more, but I couldn't because of my rugby schedule. So when I finished playing professionally last year, I was like, right, I, I want to use this time of transition over the next year or two to really use my my platform, my profile to be able to give back. And that's the main reason that I set up the DC10 fund and partnered with UNICEF to to really try and help and, and support the, these children in need. If, if people want to get involved, I understand there's an auction underway at the moment. You, you did a kickathon, which was um, a bit crazy, a, a, a long time spent kicking. I presume the body was very sore after that. Um, an auction is kind of an easier thing, I suspect, for you to be involved in. Yes. Um, yeah, you're right. So currently I've got a pair of uh, limited edition rugby boots um, that I designed with Adidas and they were going to be my retirement boots. I was going to play my last game of professional rugby in these boots. But with the, the, the pandemic um, that, that geez, was just over two years ago now, I ended up having to to return back to New Zealand. I never actually played my, my last game for, professionally w- with these boots. So I designed a pair, Adidas raffled a few pairs off, so you've never actually been able to buy a pair of these boots. But I wanted to, to bring my two passions together. Uh, one passion, giving back to children in need that I've just talked about, and the other passion of kicking. I've always been able to kick goals and it's something I love, even 
now I've finished being a professional rugby player, I I love taking my bag of rugby balls down to the park and kicking goals. So I wanted to bring my two passions together for a fundraising event. So I went down to Eden Park and I kicked goals for 24 hours straight, uh, no sleep. And I managed to, to survive the 24 hours. I raised um, some incredible money f- to help provide clean water for, for children in the Pacific Islands. And I managed to kick 1,598 kicks <laughs> in that 24 hours, which is how many um, test points I scored for the All Blacks. So I was it was you know a, a real milestone. It was tough. It was just what I needed, having retired, to put my mind and body um, to the limits again, which is something we I used to do when, when I was playing um, professionally every weekend. You, you'd go to those lengths, but it was a, it was a great experience. And we raised some fantastic money and we are closing the, the event in terms of a fundraising event uh, next week. And I thought I'd do one last um, donation. Um, so I put a pair of my rugby boots, these limited edition rugby boots that I wore for the entire 24 hours. I wore one pair of these limited edition boots for, for 24 hours. Um, so they probably smell a little bit. They're a little bit dirty. They've had plenty of uh, wear and tear throughout their 24 hours, but I'm auctioning them off um, on eBay and 100% uh, of that, you know, the, the donation, whoever the lucky person is to to bid the most for these boots that one will go towards um, helping provide fresh water for these children in the Pacific Islands. And in a true tribute to your career, did you kick the last one with your right boot? <laughs> Yeah, I know. So in the, the World Cup final in 2015, I had a little bet with a couple of uh, teammates of mine because I'd never actually kicked a goal in a, in a test match with my wrong foot. And my father used to always tell me to kick off both feet. So I grew up kicking off my left and right foot. <coughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, we had an opportunity in the, the World Cup final in 2015. So the last kick of my all-black career was off my wrong foot. So... I, I yeah I slotted that, but then through this kickathon event, I realised actually I need to kick off both feet. There's no way I can last 24 hours kicking over 1500 kicks just off my my left uh, my left foot. So I mixed it up and, and kicked kicked off both feet. Uh, you're obviously still you love kicking you're, if you're still doing this um, it's not something that you've had enough of it's not something that you're sickened by it doesn't it actually still excites you to have the challenge to be able to kick yeah it's, it's it, people are asking you know why you know why are you down at the park kicking so often but for me it's 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 like it's my happy place it's like meditation to me um so in the, the busy world that, that I'm living post footy, I just feel like to clear my head, I go put in my, my headphones and listen to music and kick goals. It's, it's something I, I love doing. And I think for as long as I'm able to kick and the body holds up and, and stays in one piece, I, I'll kick for as long as I possibly can. But to do an event like the kickathon just gave it that little bit more meaning where I was actually kicking for something much bigger than myself. To, to be able to, to support these children in need in the Pacific Islands. It, it gave a real sense of, of meaning and something that, that I really miss since since playing rugby. So, um, yeah, I, I love kicking. It's, yeah, it's, um, it'll always be a big part of my life. That bit that you said at the start where you talked about um, writing down three things every day that you're grateful for, 
what age were you when you started doing that? When did you realise that this was something that would be a good thing for your own mental health and for just your own sense of who you are in the world? Oh, I, I was in my 20s and I got to pay tribute. It wasn't something that I came up with. It was uh, uh, a coach, Wayne Smith, who coached the All Blacks for a number of years and even coached me at the Kobe Steelers in Japan where the team that I finished playing for at the end of my career, he was really big on this and he used to make the team just really spend a little bit of time of their day where they just were grateful for something and you actually had to write it down and there's just something a lot more for me personally meaningful when I actually get a pen and paper and write it down. It means that I'm accountable, it has uh, a lot of meaning. So it was a real value for us in the All Blacks is actually showing gratitude and showing humility. You know, we used to get free clothes, uh, car, we used to get all these things um, as, as a rugby player. And it's quite easy to, to get ahead of yourself and think that you're better than you are. So you need to, to actually work and spend time on focusing on things, you know, you're grateful for and thankful for and, um, and make sure that, you know, you, you remain grounded and keep your feet on the ground because that's, that's a huge part of, of success and a huge part of the culture here in, in New Zealand. So, um, yeah, it's been a big part of, you know, my, my All Black career is focusing on that. Even now that I've finished playing, I like to, to, to spend time focusing on, um, you know, things that I'm, I'm thankful for in my life. That's really interesting because you kind of, you come into the team as as a, a very famous, you know, talent that everybody has massive expectations for. And eventually your team delivers on those expectations, but it's not a straightforward, everything is easy from day one. Uh, international rugby is easy. The World Cups are easy. It's the opposite of that. There's there's heartbreak and there's despair and there's recrimination. And you, you had a first-hand, you know, a, a, a view of the, the best and worst of New Zealand rugby culture Where's the, in your mind, when you look back on it, where's the hinge point that things turn for the better and you, you begin to have those values and you begin to live those values? It's something that's ingrained in you as soon as you are part of the All Black environment. And it's not the coaches or management that are teaching you the values of, of what it takes to, to be an All Black or, or live in the All Black environment. It's, it's the senior players and we used to have some incredible senior players in, in the group, the likes of Kevin Mialamu, Brad Thorne, and they used to spend a lot of time with the new guys coming into the environment and, you know, just, just getting them up to speed of, of you know, the, the all-black way and, 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 you know, the values that, that we live and we spend a lot of time of looking back at the history of, of the all-blacks and but then making them realise that, they're just custodians of the jersey. It's, it's now their job and their role to, to add to this legacy. So all of a sudden they walk away really motivated, inspired to, to, to realise that their mission, their, their purpose is to actually leave the jersey in, in a better place than what it was before they arrived. And when you have you know, a belief and, and values like that, you know, everyone's going to give it 100% every single uh, day of the year. So that's, that's a, a really big value that we, we rely on the guys when, when they come into the environment. And then there's a whole lot of things like work ethic is, is another big one. Um, uh, walking towards pressure. Obviously, pressure is a big part of 
you know high performance and and playing under pressure and um, actually walking towards that pressure rather than letting it, it be a burden is, is another one that, that we really um, spend a lot of time on working on as well. So I think you know now that I've finished, I, I look back at, at my time in, in, in the All Black environment and just yeah, really really lucky to to learn a, a lot of incredible. Uh, insights and into things that you can carry on even uh, life after rugby. There's a narrative out there that this happens in the aftermath of the defeat in the World Cup, but it sounds to me like you guys were doing it all the time, and that sometimes you don't always win, and that's the vagaries of sport. That it wasn't as simple as we fixed everything because we lost one World Cup. No, it was uh, accumulation of a lot of things, but we probably didn't learn enough. Like I was there in, in 2003 where we lost the World Cup semi-final and through that time we didn't probably spend enough time learning from the the unsuccessful World Cups that had gone before us and we went into 2007 thinking that we had um, enough and, and what it took to, to win that World Cup. Uh, we didn't. We uh, got knocked out by France in, in the quarterfinal, and we're the worst performing All Black side in the history of, of World Cup history. Going into that World Cup as the number one side for you know for three, three or four years straight, so it was uh, a huge insight for us. But something we learned a lot earlier was about culture and uh, building a really diverse culture where everyone could contribute, everyone felt welcomed, um, everyone could could be themselves. And we've been working on that for a number of years. And then we went to 2007 and we thought that that was enough. But that was just a little little cog in, in the wheel. We What we didn't realise is actually the importance of your mental strength and working on your mental game because we were spending a number of hours in the gym, we were spending a number of hours on the training field, but we weren't spending enough time working on our, our mental strength, you know, how to, to deal with pressure, how to deal with setbacks, how to, um, you know, deal with uh, communication when the opposition are absolutely on fire. So we took some great learnings from 2007 and we were able to apply that and along with the work that we're doing in terms of building uh, a unique culture in the group, I think that was a huge reason why the All Blacks were, you know, so successful. Um, you know, for for a you know a, a good ten years or so um, after that World Cup. Is there also something about the style of play in that there's an innate sense of adventure and we want to keep the ball and we want to make sure that our skills are better than everybody else that maybe the rest of the world um, you know we, we, we've we've obviously all read the book Legacy and, and kind of got as much insight as we possibly can from that, that side of things it does strike me too that you all really enjoy the most exciting part of the game which is being creative and that's something you can't really you can teach it and you can get better at it because I definitely believe you can teach anything and get better at anything but that innate sense of we want to try something that other people haven't tried we are the guardians of the spirit of the game yeah all the coaches that we've ever had in New Zealand really encouraged the individuals to express themselves. You know, there's a reason that you're picked at the highest level is because you have the skill set, you have the drive to to continue to not just follow trends, but to be world leading. So we were innovative, trying new things. But one thing that we spent a lot more time on than a lot of people realize is actually the core skills. So as an All Black, we used to go to 
club rugby training or kids training and we used to get back out into the community and, and do a lot of coaching and have these little junior clubs going okay well the coach would go hey can you take these kids and do some of your all black drills that you guys do so we'd take them through some all black drills and it was just really simple basic catch pass running straight and they're like no 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 seriously like give us some of these special drills that you guys do as the all black i was like well this is it like we focus so much on the core skills so when we score these silky silky beautiful tries if you actually break it down it is just doing the fundamentals of the game better than the opposition and we used to really pride ourselves on on doing the basics over and over and over again because if you did that then you're able to to play freely express yourself and um, you know, play the, this beautiful style of play. Whereas I see a lot of teams, they they want to play this flamboyant, open style of play, but they're not doing the basics well enough. You know, the, the passes are not, you know, right on the chest. Um, the, the the catching, the the arms are not extended to catch the ball early. They're catching the ball late on their chest. So just little things like that that we would spend hours and hours at training working on. So that's very much a, an All Blacks culture and the culture of your career in New Zealand. Like, What about post-All Blacks? Was was there a different culture that you endured or enjoyed maybe in, in France and I guess even in, in Perpignan right in the middle of, of that time with the All Blacks? Yeah, so when I look back now and you know, I was lucky enough to, to have a long playing career here in New Zealand and then um, some opportunities to, to play in France and then finished my career in Japan. So three completely different cultures and the learnings that I got from those three cultures was incredible. Um, one thing that I learned is you can't take what you do in one environment and culture and just replicate that in France, for example. And I knew that in 2009 when I went to Perpignan, it was my first experience. It was only six months in France. But I soon learned that the French, they do things uh, differently. And so when I went to racing 92, I didn't want to go there and say, hey, look, at the All Blacks, we do this and that. We should try and change to play more like what they do. I knew that that just wasn't going to work in, in the, the French culture and the way they did things. So I spent the first three months not really saying anything, to be honest. I just... I sat back and, and I just learned the way that they went about their work and their delivery and their style of play. And then over time, I was able to just implement little things. And I was really fortunate enough to, to have a good Irishman, uh, Ronan O'Gara, on uh, the coaching group there. So I used to spend a lot of time in his office just talking rugby, talking about things we did in, in New Zealand, not trying to change um, the, the way we played, just trying to give little ideas and just a, a new insight into things that, that we could try um, at racing and try and just evolve our game in a little way. But if you try and throw too much on them, it, it just you know, it, it backfires, it backfires. And I've seen a lot of Kiwi guys that they go into to French environments and they just get so frustrated because things are done differently. You've got to accept that things are going to be done differently and it's just the way it is. And then but over time, you can slowly just implement uh, little things that, that can often you know, make, it, make a big change. And I think some of the coaches probably have the same view as well, where they go into a French environment and sometimes 
get taken aback a little bit by some of the things that they see. Maybe that time is over, but certainly maybe 10, 15 years ago, that was the case. So was Ronan O'Gara very inquisitive? Was he constantly asking you questions in terms of bits that he could take from the All Blacks culture and implement within the, the Racing changing rooms? Yeah, he, he was a young coach and he was he was willing to learn. And that's what I love so much about, about Rog, his, his willingness to, to learn, take in information, his passion for the game uh, blew me away. So much so that um, when he got the opportunity to to coach uh, down here in New Zealand, he he took it, and I'm I'm sure he could earn a lot more money, um, you know, coaching in France. But he wanted to learn so much that he you know took the the job opportunity at the Crusaders, had a couple of very successful seasons there, and learned off um, you know some of the best coaches in the world and, and, and the coaching staff that they had at the Crusaders and then his time was to to to, to move on to, to bigger and better things and now I think that's a, a big part of the reason why La Rochelle are having so much success recently is, is a lot of the learnings um, that, that Rog has, has taken from his, his time time in New Zealand and he will bring his own spin uh, on, on things and um, yeah, so I, I really enjoyed you know my time working alongside Roger. The story goes you were involved in in recommending him for the the gig in New Zealand. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I um, yeah. Obviously, you know, used to play with uh, Scott Robinson. So you know, when he was looking for um, a backs coach, you know, he asked uh, about Rog, and you know, I could only say good things. Having you know worked alongside uh, Rona for a couple of years and his willingness to learn. Um, I still realised at that time he, w- he was a young coach, um, but his his passion for the game, his willingness to to learn. So he had a really growth, uh, he had a huge growth mindset, which, which I loved. Um, he never thought that he had all the answers. He was um, willing to to listen and learn and, and also debate, which, which is very important as well. So. Um, I knew it would be a perfect fit for both the Crusaders and Ronan and, you know, it was hugely successful and I'm sure that, you know, he's a much better coach because of his time uh, down here in New Zealand. Was there ever any part of you that was thinking, I mean, you have a growth mindset, you're still obsessed with the game, you still love it, you still love being around the environment, that coaching is in your future? Oh, yeah, oh, I don't know, like I do, I, I love the game. And I love watching the game. I'm hugely passionate uh, about rugby. I feel like I have a lot of knowledge and experience to, to share. But I've given so much to the game uh, as a player. And now I feel like I just need to to use my energy and time on my family. I've got a, a young uh, family of four children, uh, four boys, all under nine years old. And I just, I love my weekends with, with my, with my kids. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm testing my patience, uh, helping coach, uh, you know, their, their soccer teams and, and rugby teams and, you know, playing Uber driver to, uh, to their kids sports and the weekends. I just, I just love that. And I felt like my last couple of seasons when I was in Japan, they were based in New Zealand. So I missed a lot of their childhood. So, they're so young. My youngest is 11 months and my eldest just turned nine. So they're at really good ages where they need to, to have um, you know, mum and dad around. So if I get into coaching, it's it's full on. Like it's I've seen how hard the top coaches work 
and to to then be away for the weekends as well. It's just for for me the the timing wasn't quite right um, to, to to get into coaching. Um, you never say never. Who knows what the, what the future holds? But in this point of time. Um, coaching you know doesn't really interest me so a bit of broadcasting might be the, the future is it no broadcasting is just as bad you know you're <laughs> away from the weekend again um i find uh find other ways there's plenty of other um you know projects that, that i'm working on uh, a lot of ambassador uh work as well um just yeah t- taking some 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 time out uh you know from the game as you know a repurpose and, and focus on how i can make you know the biggest impact over the next 10 20 years um you know in, in the sec- second uh, chapter of, of my life well that's fair enough one last question for you then uh, how many tests will ireland win in new zealand this summer <laughs> oh, i love that um this is huge honestly it's, it's a Proud Kiwi and the the way the the Irish played against us in November completely outplayed us. Um, has brought so much excitement around these the, these three Test matches in New Zealand. As you know, us Kiwis we're, we're pretty passionate about rugby. It's it's like a religion down here in New Zealand. Um, so to be completely outplayed like like we were in November brings some some real excitement to the series. Three Test matches. The All Blacks, we, we really need to know exactly where we're at. And this series against an inform Irish side. And I, I followed them pretty closely through the Six Nations and, and I thought they played extremely well. Great to see Johnny Sexton getting consistent game time and, and playing well and, and driving the team around the park. So I'm hugely excited. I've given you the real long answer. Um, you know, I can't, I can't say... I have to support my, my Kiwi brothers um, whenever they play, but this is these are just the test matches that uh, that the All Blacks need um, just over a year from from the World Cup to just see exactly where we're at, whether we've got the combinations right, um, how much change we need to to make um, over the next eighteen months, and yeah, um, I'm sure the uh, the Irish are you know pretty keen to to build on the momentum that, that they started. Um, or that they've been building over the last few years against the All Blacks. Ordinarily, Dan, the answer would have been, oh, we'll win all three of them back in the day, but at least there's a bit of doubt in your mind that I can sense here <laughs> that it's not a guaranteed nailed-on whitewash. Oh, mate, it never was against Ireland. Yeah, we obviously had a great record against the Irish, but <laughs> and, and amongst that time, there were many great escapes um, for, <laughs> against the Irish. And, I, and I, you know, one springs to mind down in, in Christchurch where I wobbled a dead duck drop goal over. Um, we remember. The, you know, <laughs> yeah, you guys probably should have beaten us that, that night, but um, we never sort of had these dominant performances. We, we had a couple of lucky uh, escapes, so it was always a, a huge test match against the Irish. So I'm never, never, you know, super confident when coming up against the Irish. And, you know, you had some great success over us in recent years. But if I had to, um, not a betting man, but if I was, you know, I, I can't bet against uh, the All Blacks uh, 3 to nil. Right. OK. Well, look, just a reminder, Dan Carter's gold Adidas Predator boots are for sale for a great cause. That auction is live on eBay. We're going to share that link and it's also posted on Dan's Twitter feed as well. If you want to own a slice of rugby history and to help a great cause, you've been great with your time, Dan. We wish you the very best. 400 grand raised already for the kickathon. And as you said, that's um, there's still another week to go for that. So we hope that you, you hit the half a million, and I have no doubt you probably will. Thanks a million, Dan. Congratulations on um, 
you know, the fundraiser and, and surviving the 24 hours and the rest of your career as well, which is also pretty good. Oh, I really appreciate your time and, and thank you so much for your support. I I miss my trips to uh, to Ireland, um, but obviously might be able to hopefully pop over there uh, sometime soon. So um, thanks, thanks again. Cheers. That's uh, Dan Carter, rugby legend, joining us this morning uh, for a very good cause. It is for UNICEF Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's 9.39 here on OTBAM. If you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. And we're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.